Nanny and the Orphan Maker outsold the Avengers one month. So that to me was extremely gratifying. I was like, Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Avengers found shaking. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is... Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Marvel Comics writer Jerry Duggan, best known in ex-adjacent books probably for his long run with the character of Deadpool, but currently writing Marauders and Cable as part of the Dawn of X era that we are all enjoying so much. Jerry, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing? I am doing good. I'm thrilled to have you on. I am such a fan of everything you're doing, particularly right now. I love Marauders. It's one of my favorites. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, it's a a thrill to be a part of something that I loved uh, so much growing up. And then obviously now is such an exciting era. And to be able to collaborate with so many friends and then have the fans, um, you know, react the way that the fans have. It's, um, you know, knock on wood, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it feels pretty special right now. So I will say as a lifelong fan, I've said this before, it's the most excited I've been about this since Morrison. I, I think it's the best status quo since the Claremont Simonson 80s. I think it's a really good time for the X-Men. Those are some high, high yeah. compliments. So uh, thank you. You made me care about Teen Cable. I didn't think that was possible. And yet now I'm deeply invested in his well-being. And I am terrified of whatever event will eventually bring back regular Cable, undoubtedly, and make us all cry. (laughs) We are not here to talk about Cable or about Kate Pride, because you are writing those characters right now. And that could get a little dicey with spoilers and whatnot. So you suggested talking about Logan, or Wolverine, or I guess James Howlett, but they're never going to convince me to call him that. This is a character I have talked about being nervous to do an episode for because I have not read a lot of the solo Wolverine stuff, of which there are reams upon reams and scrolls and ancient texts and all kinds of things that I uh, only have a glancing familiarity with. What is your origin story with the X-Men? How did you come to love these characters? What was your entry point? Um... Well, I will show my age. I'm proudly Gen X. I uh, I was reading um, Marvel Comics Presents and the and X Men and uh, all, really all my comics right off of uh, a spinner rack, and they they don't even exist anymore. But but right. they um, we had a comic shop in in the town I grew up in in Ridgewood, uh, uh, New Jersey, and um, he had a lot of I think he was buying comic books from other comic book dealers or just newsstand stuff that they were going to rip the covers off of because he would just have like 20 and 30 of certain X-Men issues. And before really any speculating was happening, he wasn't a great retailer, but he ended up with a lot of stock and he needed help sorting the stock. Um, And so I did that after school as that was my first job in seventh grade. This would have been... Uh, mid 80s and uh you know it's uh i made friends there um we all went to remedial ccd together later <laughs> uh 
and then when we were a little bit older, we um, jumped on our bikes and we rode to uh, a, a, a comic shop further away that was really a much better comic shop. And then we were going into the Penta convention. So that was like 87, 88. That's when I was born. Not to yeah. make you feel old. No, yeah, no I know. <laughs> I, like, you know, and we have, um, there's all sorts of things now that I'm in X-Men that uh, I, I realize how young the audience is, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I'm in my 30s, but I have an old X-Men soul because my father's a collector. So I grew up reading the Claremont Simons and stuff rather than the stuff that was oh, coming out cool. in the 90s. So I have yeah. this very specific rapport with, I guess, people 10 years older than me somehow in terms of <laughs> when we talk about the X-Men. I'm deeply invested in Madeline Pryor and in yeah, Excalibur absolutely. and the Outback team and, well, you know, all of those people. You know, it was a big deal when Wolverine got his own yeah. solo title. In 88, right? Yeah, Buscema and, and Claremont. And, you know, that was one I actually put a, two or three copies away because the, that was sort of when speculation started. And, right. Uh, but, but he was, you know, prior to that, I think, um, you know, I, I was going in order. So I, I met Kitty Pride the same year that I met Kate Pride. From Days of Future Past. Yeah, Kate went back in time. And so that version, the older version of Kate has been marinating, you know, in my neurons since then. And and indeed, all of these characters have to a certain extent. The the, the idea, though, that... <laughs> what's the right way to say this? The, you know, continuity is a guardrail. Yes. You know, we try to not... But, but, but with Logan... Uh, you know, he was always a man of mystery. That was the cool thing. You know, what was his past? How did this happen to him? We, um, I think I fell in love with him really in the assault on the Hellfire Club. Mm -hmm. That last splash of the issue where he's hiding in the, uh, pressed up against the boards in the ceiling. I forget exactly what that would have been, but uh, that was Burn. You know, they, they, chucked, they chucked him into the sewers and they thought he was dead. And I was like, I have to come back the next month. Like, I, there's no way I can't not know. He kills them all, except then later he didn't kill them at all. And they become the Reavers. But it seemed like he killed them all at the time. <laughs> it seemed like he killed them all. That's exactly right. <laughs> I think they pulled that back a little. Uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, they did. Um, and, and so that was, you know, the start of uh, me admiring a, a superhero whose powers were stabbing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about him as a character is how many things we now take for granted are just part of the character, but took a very long time to be established. Like, initially, the claws were just part of his gloves, right? But then Claremont establishes, yes, no, he takes the gloves off and he still has the claws. And then his healing factor doesn't even exist until the Proteus arc. Right. Little things kept getting added on. The fact that he doesn't remember his past is something you don't really get until about 1990. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of implied he's forgotten things, but the idea that he's like definitively 100 years old and is an amnesiac is like from the 90s almost. Because the character was mysterious and a man of few words a lot of the time, we all assume that that was always the case, but so much of it is development of the character over the years. Yeah. Yep. There was, um, there was a panel too that I... I have to make a conscious decision to either go back and reread or to not go back and reread when I get certain assignments. There are certain times when it's very helpful. There are other times where you want to steer away from it and just chart a, a, an all new course. 
I did go back when when Marauders was getting greenlit to read the earliest days of the Hellfire uh, Club saga, and uh, there's a panel of Wolverine in the first appearance of Emma, Kitty, and Shaw, where he he's it's very um, like almost two thousands attitude towards uh, pornography about not wanting to pay for content. He's just reading a playboy and the shop owner is getting mad in the middle of this in the middle of the comic they just stopped for a gag it was great like i i I laughed then and then i laughed now remembering it looking at it and going you know you can't talk someone out of a laugh or a boner that was the the great philosopher roger ebert i believe said that Mm -hmm. and uh you know so he was i think uh, the straw that stirred right like the, the wild the wild card Back then, everyone sort of um, on that team sort of had their thing. Um, but where I really fell in love with um, with Wolverine, I think, was that uh, you know the the mini that that Frank drew that um, uh, Chris wrote, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was wonderful. And boy, what a gift that was to to Wolverine. And then. I was reading Marvel Comics Presents off the rack and just flipping out over that. And then also, I think it's X-Men 205. The other, you know, when we talk about the people that maybe have given the most to a character, um, you know, Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah. You know, that that um, that that's that issue in the snow in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I could I could still just stop and, and read that and lose myself. And forget about everything that was happening to me that day and just be in that comic book. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's a really wild one. <laughs> yeah. That's the one where he teams up with Katie Power, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, Katie Power, Barry, Barry Windsor Smith, Pencils, Inks. It was um, another Claremont issue. Mm-hmm. And then I've been lucky enough, I got to sit and flip through the original art. Oh, that, man. That was just amazing. And those are... Uh, I never knew how to pronounce anyone's names, but it's O. The last name was uh, started with an O. Who? So all the lettering is on the page too. It's incredible. Oh yeah, Tom Rosakowski. Ah yeah yeah yeah. Yeah yeah, and so, so even that like that um, lettering style is just so ingrained in my head about like that era of X Men. Oh yeah, I mean when Jay Edden was on, he was mentioning that in his Marvel Snapshots issue that he just did, Tom Rosakowski did the lettering and it felt insane to like look at it and look at your own work written in that hand because yep. if you're a Claremont fan, it is wild it's crazy to think right? about because that, that lettering is so distinctive. Yep. Yeah, I bought a, a Promethea page years ago and mm. uh, Todd Klein uh, did the lettering right on the art and that's uh, still, I think, of what l- tiny little bits of art i have that's i think the only thing that's lettered yeah it's not something you see that often especially now totally um but but back to logan that really was that cemented him as oh he's a ronin right the whole japanese thing with him yep i stayed um frank miller was probably the first comics creator that i just said i'm gonna follow that name um it might have been walt actually it might have been walt simonson but it was surely the two of them i don't know who was first and then so following uh miller out of uh, um 
Daredevil, into that mini, into Batman, into the other things he did. One of the things that uh, he did uh, was paint, well, I guess he penciled them, and then I don't know if Lynn painted them or Bill painted them or whoever painted them, but the covers for uh, the first comics reprints of Lone Wolf and Cub are just amazing. So I fell into that comic, and that became one of my favorite all-time comic books. That's, That's probably... Even more than my beloved X-Men, that's probably my Desert Island comic. If I'm going to know that I'm going to be stranded, I'm going to take those 28 volumes with me. Well, and it makes sense then that you feel an affinity for Wolverine, because if I were to describe Wolverine, I have, I think, described him this way. It's like he's a white Canadian guy obsessed with Lone Wolf and Cub. That is sort of like his whole thing, right? Like he, he is obsessed with the whole samurai thing. You all think, yeah, his, his these these X fans think uh, he has no taste in his Canadian tuxedos, and his, <laughs> it turns out he has tremendous taste. It's just in a very narrow strike. In zone. a very specific, uh, <laughs> yeah. I like to think that when Betsy decided, all right, I'm Japanese now. I need to start wearing kimonos. I need to get into all this art. I need to like she was and she was trying so hard to just pretend that that was normal. I have to assume that she called Logan and was like, Logan, if I'm buying like a wall school, where do I get that? You know, because he knows he's like the original anime fan of Marvel Comics. I got a spot. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny about, um, and I I don't know, I hadn't really considered this until now, but, you know, the actually the start of that um, solo series, right, is set in Madripoor, Mm -hmm. you know, a port town that like they were kind of riffing, they were doing... Um, you know, their their Casablanca riff, yeah. and uh, it, it was great. It was, you know, a lot of these um, characters are, um, uh, and this is going to sound like I'm being demeaning, I'm, I'm not. They, they are tofu, they are awaiting whatever flavor that you were going to be bringing, and then they, they, they can hold that f- for you. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that was... That was another gift, right? Like Madripoor is still a gift all of that, that we're playing with yeah, today. I remember being a kid and reading all of that 80s stuff and when Wolverine pivoted off to his solo. And actually, I had initially, I was reading through Uncanny. So I got to gotcha. the wedding to Marico before I read any of that solo stuff. And then I had to go back and go, wait, when did this happen? Who's this lady? All of- <laughs> and the flavor is a good way to put it because Wolverine in Madripoor or Patch in Madripoor, and Wolverine yeah. in Japan, is so different from the Wolverine that you get if you've been reading Uncanny. He suddenly pivots into a completely different genre. Yeah. I think that that's one of the reasons that he has been successful as a solo character, is his ability to do that. Yeah. And to do a samurai manga-type story, or do a noir detective-type story, or do other things that aren't X-Men comics. Yeah. There are other characters who I think can do that, but with the X-Men, I find that they often don't work solo, and I think it's because that team vibe is so important for most of them, and that the mutant thing is so important for most of them, but Logan as a character is always kind of ambivalent about the mutant thing. He stays at Xavier's because he thinks these people seem pretty cool, right. you know, they, they earn his respect. It's not that he's really invested in the political status of being a mutant. Even now on Krakoa, he seems somewhat ambivalent about the premise of Krakoa. Yeah, he's, um, I think that's a good way to describe him. I think we're sometimes in search of 
finding reasons to anchor loners like that. And I think um, John and Ben and everyone that's been writing him has been really successful about finding a reason to keep him around the island. What what is at at its his core, you know, the the lone wolf uh, to go yeah. to go back to that. Um, you know, he, he, obviously he has a lot of love in his heart, and and so he's staying and and fighting but you know you could easily imagine a day when he might go i need to get the hell off the island yeah what am i doing here i mean i think that <laughs> or it's sorted like i succeed right. you know like i yeah now it's time for some me time i gotta go back to madripoor and clean out all these human crime lords and you know <laughs> yeah. tiger tiger is the only human crime lord he likes over there Just put her back in charge yeah, that's right in the princess bar in the princess bar yeah. yeah that was their, their which place. is that's gone and then the remember like the kind of the blonde james bond he's gone too i forget his name but oh, he God, was the, yeah. sort of the partner or the owner of the princess bar oh, and what is his name i always notice because some of these guys die off panel and i always go well did you die Oh, right like time. wait 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 remind me who are you are you supposed yeah. to be here <laughs> oh o'donnell o'donnell mr yes. o'donnell did he have a first name or was he just mr he's o'donnell? always just been called o'donnell oh uh, yeah o'donnell. i was like it's something irish what is his name yeah and yeah they killed him off in the 90s did you get that without google or did you no i googled it i googled right. princess bar guy yeah. like marvel and i was like <laughs> it was like i can picture him in my Very head good. it's something irish it's an oh something but i can't think of his name Oh man, what are what are we training the AI to know about <laughs> us with that with this line of question? I think that what's been very successful in terms of giving Logan a reason to be on Krakoa, giving Logan that drive, even if politically he's never been that interested. He was an Avenger. It's always interesting which X-Men are willing to be Avengers, right? Because that sort of positions them outside of the X-Men's milieu. Yeah. And when Avengers versus X-Men happened, he sided with the Avengers. Like, you know, there's things like that that are interesting. And he was always tight with Carol Danvers and Nick Fury and all of those people who are outside of the X-Men realm. Well, you may you may know, sorry not to run you over, but I had no, a question because one of my other favorite Wolverine stories is one that, um, well, obviously Kitty Pride and Wolverine, that mini was great. But, yeah. but the one shot I'm thinking of is Spider-Man and Wolverine, mm-hmm. uh, which Priest cast him really as this spy, like almost... He he's not James Bond, but he's kind of a Felix Leitner, the guy who's yeah, going to get his absolutely. hands dirty and and that what a great gift. I don't know uh, when in doubt always credit Priest. I don't know if that existed for Logan before Priest, but that was such an indelible bruise on that character uh, at that moment and such a gut punch for Spider-Man. Yeah, I'm trying um, to remember if Wolverine's work for Landau Luckman and Lake is before or after that. Yeah. I'll find out in my research for the yes. Cerebro Character yeah, Pop of this episode, which is going to be like about yeah. an hour unto itself, probably. <laughs> I feel like the longest ones I've done so far have been Betsy and Brian Braddock. Ah, yeah, yeah. Which made sense as long ones because those are pretty complicated. And I go in publication history, not in chronology. So like I have to do the retcons as they come. Yeah. Wolverine is going to be a really trippy one since you said you wanted to do wolverine i've been like outlining that because <laughs> i'm like i gotta i'm like when does silver fox die when does this happen when does that happen are you going to be able to continue to do this after covid this is a lot of like man hours like when we are i work from home okay 
and Very I do good. this at night when I am not night owl. Yeah, I mean, and I good. love I love my job. Yes, but I also need to be doing something else. Yeah. So can I do it after COVID? It depends if people are still listening. People will be listening. It's a great podcast. Thank you so much. It's the only podcast I've listened to this year. That's not a lie. <laughs> I <laughs> very, very much enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, of I course. did this kind of on a whim and Teeny came into the first episode because she works with me and I was like, do you want to come do that? And I've been really wowed by the response, which I wasn't expecting. Did you name it? I did. Yeah, very, congratulations. It's a great name. Thank you. I, I was initially thinking of calling it Focus Totality, but then I thought that was a little too specific. Nope. Yep. And I you couldn't get it. the... I couldn't get the usernames online because some other homosexual had already taken this. Whoever you are, I support you. Yeah, we we salute you from Krakow. Yes, yeah. But no, what I was going to say is I think that the most brilliant innovation, and of course it's been controversial, but to give Logan a grounding on Krakoa that makes sense is throwing him into whatever's going on with him and Gene and Scott. Right. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it makes a lot of sense in terms of his relationship with the two of them for the last 50 years. But it also makes a lot of sense because what has always motivated Logan is a girl. It's usually either a girl or a teenage girl who he has taken in as his daughter. Yeah. Those are sort of the two things that tend to, to make him care. Or the rivalry, right? Like the spotlight will fall on the female character or the rivalry that is preventing that female character from being in the spotlight correct or like the weird sort of yeah, yeah. homosocial relationship between him and the female character's boyfriend yeah there's yeah. a lot of that and i think the fact that he seems to be spending quality time with gene and scott now is a good way of resolving all of that tension yeah <laughs> i also really liked the storm stuff in ten of swords ah sure the sort of teasing at that which is funny because i've never particularly cared for the two of them as a romantic pairing but that drinking contest, it vibed to me as like, these are friends who have been friends for a long time and have had sex occasionally, but it's like, they're just having a laugh. It's not that serious. There's a nice history there. I, there are, um, I think probably this would go both ways. Much like Wolverine, apparently. Ooh, much like, yeah, much <laughs> right. <laughs> Snicked. And Kate Pride, but I'm not going to make you talk about that. I, I, uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> but but the the you know I have exes right like uh, that I would not want to get back with but certainly I would love to to hang out drink. with yes and yeah. and go how how are you doing what what's going on like how did where did things go uh, you know and and why wouldn't you you know like I I think you know if you're willing to spend a lot of time in a relationship with someone. You know, there are relationships you need to, to break clean and, and get away. And then there are ones where, you know, everyone can coexist in in parallel. And uh, that that was fun. I knew we were going to get some eyebrows raised about that st stuff um, in Ten of Swords with Storm and, and Logan. But I also knew that Storm was going to have a, a strong showing and Ten of Swords, so whether you mm -hmm. loved it or hated it. I've really enjoyed her in this event, but I've really yeah, enjoyed the event generally. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 yeah. And I'm, as a lifelong, since I was like 11 or whatever, Storm and Callisto shipper diehard, I'm pretty excited about that solicit for Marauders. Because if 
if Storm and Callisto can just finally work it out, those two crazy kids. That will be the Krakoa sexuality awakening that I've longed for my whole life. I'm just putting it out there. I loved the knife toss, yep. goddess, Morlock, all of that. You get yeah. you get the vibe. It feels very Claremont in the classic way, not in the tentacle way when it happened again. But <laughs> in the, in the yeah, mutant she had, yeah, she had some body horror upon her. Yeah, um, you know what? That one was a really fun one to write. And that one was also one that I knew Mateo was going to draw. And so I I wrote it for Mateo. And it is a one-shot. So, I mean, you could come into this and hopefully enjoy it without ever having read any of Marauders. You know, as to whether or not everyone will get their wish fulfillment there, I don't... (laughs) (laughs) want to necessarily commit to that one way or the other but what i do think is someone who uh has invested a lot in these characters i do hope uh what should i say about covers Uh, we've been lying to people on covers for oh of course and and it's funny to me that the x fans in one moment will sort of say Welcome to the party, pal, as someone is sort of learning on the fly what it's like to be an X-Men character. But they'll (laughs) sort of forget the cardinal rule that, like, we are always lying to you. Yeah. Like, we will lie to you in solicits, on covers, sometimes at the end of issues, sometimes during the issues. Oh, constantly. Whatever we need to do. But, But that one was fun, and that one does have roots that go all the way back, but is very much of the moment, and... um. Yeah, I I would be really interested to know what you think. I hope you like that one. No, I'm excited. I'm a big Callisto fan. When Marauders was first announced, I was so confused by the title because I was like, why would you take that name? (laughs) So I really did like the scene with her and Mask where he's like, isn't that a little tacky? Like, you know, and she was like, (laughs) Kitty Pryde got hurt by those people just as much as we did. So if she wants the name, let her have it. I do think, I have said this before, I think that now that Hellions exists, it did take me a while to wrap my brain around Marauders being Emma's book and Hellions being Sinister's book. That took me a second. Sure. But I do get that Marauders makes more sense for a bunch of pirates. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, I think the my first working document, I think it was called like X-Men Buccaneers or something. I knew, <laughs> I knew that was bad, but I just right. had to move on because I didn't care. Of like, course. I had yeah. a million things that I wanted to write down and not worry about the title and that the title would sort. Well, it's such a fresh concept. Well, it feels crazy to sort of go, and now here are some mutant pirates and stuff. But obviously that was the real gift of, of Jonathan's story and the, the way that uh, everyone was going to get behind it. I mean, I was heading towards a pirate comic anyway. I just didn't think I was going to be able to exploit it at Marvel. And to put X-Men in it. I mean, it is a wild... <laughs> yeah, and what's funny is I just sort of sat in that room the first time hearing John lay it all out. And, you know, what little hair I had was blown back. And then I didn't really even think about how I could try to fit into any of it. I was just like, wow, that's probably the best story I've heard in that room. And... Boy, what a gift to to X-Men fans. I can't... I mean, this podcast would not exist if Jonathan Hickman had not dragged me back, kicking and screaming <laughs> after I had long yeah. ago said, no more of this. I'm not reading these month to month. I'm not doing this anymore. As an X-Men fan, the last, I would say, 15 years have been a, uh, a real roller coaster ride in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I eventually... 
I would say this is like five years ago, I was like, I'm in my late 20s. I am one off the roller coaster ride. And now I'm back. And it's all <laughs> Mr. Hickman's fault. And then, of course, though, it wouldn't have worked if there weren't so many of you who then, I think, stuck the landing on this new status quo. You know, House of X and Powers of Ten is brilliant. I mean, I think it's an absolute work of genius. Yeah, I, I do too. But what it does is it keys up a board, a chessboard, one might say, that then you all get to make your moves on. And yeah. what sucked me in, it really was initially Marauders and Teeny's Excalibur. And that's how I got in touch with Teeny and we ended up working together because I was just like, I, I'm a huge Betsy Braddock fan, like from Yeah long ago days and i am also a big big excalibur fan excalibur was sort of the first thing i was collecting when i was like finding back issues of that claremont and davis stuff and so i love that book and marauders emma is my favorite now and i'm very picky with emma and with (laughs) people writing emma and so we're we writers are all just dresses to Emma. If you don't like her in one, you'll exactly you'll, you'll like her in another. And I was pretty unhappy about the dress she was wearing there for a while after Inhumans versus X Men. So I feel very good about the dress you've got her in now. Oh, good. I really do think you are one of the writers who gets her voice best. I mean, I I've really been enjoying this comic a great deal, and it was very gratifying as someone who was distressed as an Emma fan for quite some time. And Kitty, now Kate, is a character that I've always felt very strongly about. You know, it's impossible not to if you grew up reading that Claremont stuff. She's the protagonist in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it, she she was right, the, our lens character did, right. you know, by design, and it was very successful. Very successful. And um, I just want to thank you. I've said this on Twitter, but as like a Jewish reader... The fact that she's wearing the Star of David again, the fact that her hair is curly again, the fact that she calls Kurt her rabbi as a joke, all of that stuff being here when I feel like it has been downplayed for a very long time and it was so central to her character in the Claremont years. I just really appreciate that and I want to thank you for doing that. Yeah, of course, of course. I know there's been some discourse about the tattoos, but I have a tattoo and so does every Jew I know in their 20s and 30s, so I think that's generational. (laughs) She's not orthodox. I was uh, um, surprised by some of the reaction out of the first year of Marauders because my expectations about who would like what and who would not like what were very sort of crisscrossed. There were some, obviously, some Jewish fans that felt like she was not Jewish enough in, in the moments that I wrote for her. And it's so funny because it it's just been but so... That's a, but, but, but that's okay, too. Like, yeah, no, of it's, course. It's a valid, like... I, it's, there was someone, and I, I, I have such a hard time with Twitter and keeping track of voices. There was someone who I promised to go back and, and speak with later, and I, I think I saw them in the replies one day, but like I'm a dad and I'm a writer, and I, right. I, just, I know I missed it. But I think a lot of that is just expectation, right? It's a, or it's about it's a Rorschach test. It's about mm-hmm. how much you think. Um, that, that that character that that a Kate or a Kitty or a Ben Grimm should be. Yeah, I mean, I see I see Kate as someone who eats a cheeseburger if she feels like it. There are different you know levels of. Yeah. I don't I don't think of her as being particularly observant, so the tattoo thing didn't ping me at all. But that's what, like you're saying, it's people are allowed to have a variety of opinions, and that's what makes the world go round, right? Yeah. And and look, you may I think uh, you you may recall, even though not all of the fans might recall, 
you know, this was not her first tattoo. It certainly was not. <laughs> and and so I didn't feel like that was controversial and that was controversial. Yeah. But that's okay because I felt actually very, um, I, I felt heartened by that because I thought, oh my gosh, that means we have younger readers that like don't remember that. That don't remember and, Kitty getting a tattoo the first time. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and that's in. super cool where, you know, there are readers now uh who don't know everything and haven't marinated in it the way that we do and um and i certainly took some years off um so i i don't um yeah i, I say this every week but i was so incensed about the decimation that i really checked out for a while after that yeah went back and reread but i i missed a bit there in terms of when it was coming out and then i really did not like all of the inhuman stuff so i fell off for a while around all of that it just wasn't for me sure yeah i mean i can tell you um as just an observer in the on the sidelines for a lot of that because that was really during uh the time when i blundered into deadpool right (laughs) and then i like literally quit the first year thinking well i did a good year like that's more of anything that anyone could want from me Right. right And then sort of, no, no, stay around, see what you can do. Keep doing it, please. Keep doing it. But I will look sincerely say that nobody ever tried to make bad comics. Everyone just sort of... Oh, of course not, of course. But but everyone, right, like you, it's, um, especially with big narratives, you know, these individual titles are like uh, um, ships at sea. Mm -hmm. And to turn... more than one of them at once is very complicated and to turn all of them at the same time is even more complex and so yeah you go let's try it you know like let's try Inhumans versus X-Men and you know there were all sorts of business decisions that were going into that and I actually thought that John Jonathan's story sort of nodded to all of it in the in an appropriate way well I loved the I loved the bit where it's called the lost decade (laughs) the lost lost Yeah. Everything happened, but we can laugh about the stuff that wasn't necessarily that great. And again, as you say, no one sets out trying to make an unsuccessful comic, but not everything can land. Not everything might land. And, you know, uh, but there I think even if you were to go back and go through the, you know, the bins or go through Marvel Unlimited, you probably find some stuff. That you might surprise you. There are Chuck Austin uncanny issues I like. I mean, you know, you never know yeah, what's yeah, going to yeah. happen. You uh, can yeah. find uh, good things in any era. And and like. honestly, right? I mean, the 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 thing that Krakoa is doing, and the thing that Jonathan and Jordan and all and and CB, you know, he CB really bleeds mutant blood. You know, this took a lot of um, initiative and a lot of. Uh, lead time well it's an unprecedented rebranding like i can't think of anything really on this scale it's bigger than heroes reborn it's bigger than like it's bigger than any of those things and it's and it really is ongoing oh no yeah it's not a limited it's not age of apocalypse that goes four months you know what i mean like it is a real sea change that was the thing too at the time jonathan's era we knew we were working on it i think 20 months out before Mm -hmm. we hit and or he was rather he was scripting stuff i I don't know when in any of that my stuff started to get approved but you know there were only two mutants that he didn't get lock stock and barrel one was franklin and the other was storm Uh uh-huh because around that time 
Tanahisi was just starting mm-hmm. with writing Storm and Panther. Right. And so that that became, you know, at our first retreat when uh, in New York, I, I want to say it might have been a year before um, Marauders hit that or that that October that new October uh, launches. You know, it was uh, we need to make sure that we have Storm and Dawn of X, and we need to right. make sure that what we're doing wouldn't upset whatever they're doing, and it would not have been fair for us right. to even sort of say, "Hey, twenty-two issues from now, what's your what's she look like? Does she have her mohawk? What's the game plan? Where's Storm going to be at? Yeah, you know, I felt very fortunate to be able to." have her on the boat and give her personal reasons to be there. And, you know, uh, well, Kitty's helpful for that because storm and Wolverine both have always been very, they're sort of her parents, you know, in a lot of ways. Totally. So by the way, the other thing about it's funny you say that about Kitty's parents, you know, we never, I don't think we ever saw her mom. uh, I think we did in the eighties. We might've, but in the like thing Dark I remember, Phoenix, like way initially, her father is the memorable one. That's like that's Jean, the oh, thing. That's Jean the... rewrites her father's brain. Her father later dies on Genosha for some yeah, reason. But, 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 all, yeah, but between now and then, he tanked a savings and loan and and built mm-hmm. it off to the Yakuza. Yeah. So there's all this cool, <laughs> like dark kind of gritty stuff in her background, and that was the other thing that kind of made me feel like she could accommodate being a pirate queen. Right, yeah, no. It's wild how natural an evolution it feels. She already has a dragon parrot that sits on her shoulder. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, she loves dressing up. And in Excalibur, she's always the one who's down for Kurt's yeah. swashbuckling nonsense. I mean, that 100%. is sort of... 100%. I wish Kurt was on the boat, but that's uh, that's a secondary point. We, t- You know, we talk about a lot of different cast decisions at the time... Uh, you know, uh, we thought better to to not do that. But I, I look, Kurt's such a big part of her life. Kurt, of course, yeah. Kurt, I liked Kurt was in that first that. issue of Marauders. Mm-hmm. Kurt had to watch her bust her nose on the door. This <laughs> <laughs> is a bummer for him. Yeah. It's funny, and that's a separate that's a separate answerable mystery than the one that we already sorted about why it was hard for her physiologically to be restored oh so the so resurrection issue is telling... different from the games yeah we'll see interesting yeah, there's, a, there's, there's a very intrigued. fun story that i hope we get to rip the pull the trigger on so well i mean i'm very excited because i was really i love all the hellfire club bullshit and so all of the oh me too yeah yeah I mean, I can't believe how how many months has it been now since Shaw brought in Fenris and they haven't done anything yet. I'm like, when is that shoe going to drop? I love the idea of Emma even having to speak to Fenris, much less like, you know, sit down at a meeting with them because you know that she finds them to be the most déclassé people that she's ever met. Yes, of course. <laughs> like, these people should not have gala invites. No, it's like they were upstarts, which, first of all, she's not fond of the upstarts to begin no. with for obvious reasons. But... And then they're also neo-Nazis who are incestuous siblings. So she's just sort of watching them <laughs> yes. like, why is but, this happening? You know, why are you here you, in my house? you need a full table of mutants to eat with Shinobi and Sebastian, there's a lot of fun Hellfire shenanigans coming up in the next year. 
I don't. I almost said something about Fenris that I don't want to. I don't want to spoil. Oh, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, the the cast of Marauders is almost sprawling, and it will get more focused in year two. Year one was a lot of um, place setting, and now I have pieces in place to have a lot of fun, or I will have a lot of fun. I hope everyone is welcome to join me. It's not a it's not a thing that you are forced into. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it's all going. We're going to switch lenses from 70 millimeter and push in and 35 and you'll, there's some fun stuff for everyone. I'm excited for that because I definitely think, I think that with a lot of the Dawn of X titles, the initial year sort of was about world building out oh, yeah. the whole Krakoa thing. And now I've been saying this to people about Excalibur. Excalibur had a lot of heavy lifting to do before Ten of Swords and now... That's all been put into place, and I'm excited to see where Betsy's story goes now that it can be just Betsy's story and not let's world build this whole thing. So to pivot back to Kate's mentor, Wolverine, this might be a good moment to jump into what is undoubtedly going to be a really, really long Cerebro character file. So bear with me as I do my best to catch you up on the complete publication history of one of Marvel's (laughs) most popular characters. And uh, then we will be right back to talk to Jerry Duggan about his favorite Wolverine storylines. X-Men, X-Men. All right, folks, here goes. This is going to be a very long and very Dwai-heavy segment. That's D-W-A-I. Don't worry about it. Dwai. Logan, born James Howlett and best known by the codename Wolverine, is the most popular character in the X-Men franchise, making his first full appearance in November 1974's The Incredible Hulk 181. He came to greater prominence in May 1975's Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum, where he's chosen as one of the members of the new Second Genesis team of X-Men. As the character was developed over the years to come, particularly under writer Chris Claremont in the 80s, and exponentially after the success of the 2000 X-Men film adaptation starring actor Hugh Jackman in the role, he grew into one of the flagship properties at Marvel Comics, ranked by Wizard Magazine in 2008 as the number one comic book character of all time. Conceived by Roy Thomas and created by Len Wein and John Romita Sr., with his first appearance drawn by Herb Trimp, Wolverine, also called Weapon X, debuts as a minor antagonist for the Hulk to deal with. He's a superhero operating on behalf of the Canadian government, who interferes to stop a battle between Hulk and the Wendigo. The character was then incorporated into the new team of X-Men intended for giant size. Gil Kane mistakenly drew Wolverine's mask for that cover with much larger, pointier headgear, which Dave Cockrum liked. He felt Wolverine's initial design looked too much like Batman. The new design would become indelibly associated with Wolverine, especially when Cockrum revealed, during his run as the artist on the relaunched X-Men title, that Wolverine's hairstyle retained a similar shape when the mask was removed. A strangely persistent urban legend suggests that Wolverine was originally intended to be an actual Wolverine, transformed into a human by the High Evolutionary. Len Wein insisted to his dying day that this was completely false, but it has somehow endured as a supposed obscure bit of trivia, and Cockrum implied that he and Claremont might have bandied that idea about at one point. What is true is that Wolverine was initially intended to be a younger character, a teenager, until Cockrum drew him with his mask off and he looked a lot older than the other characters. His retractable claws, similarly, were intended to simply be part of the gloves of his costume. Claremont introduced the idea that they were part of his anatomy. Wolverine is the only member of the second Genesis team of X-Men who isn't given a civilian name or a backstory in Giant Size 1. 
Instead, he's merely recruited away by Professor Xavier from his job at Canada's Department H, and he aids in the rescue of the 60s X-Men from the living island Krakoa. He isn't an especially prominent character at first in the new run, and Claremont and Cockrum contemplated getting rid of him. Artist John Byrne, who replaced Cockrum, was Canadian himself and insisted that Wolverine, as Canada's premier Marvel superhero, be kept around. The character develops further when it's revealed he has a crush on Jean Grey, who has recently been further mutated into the cosmic-powered heroine called Phoenix. The love triangle between Cyclops, Phoenix, and Wolverine would be the centerpiece of the soap opera plots in X-Men for many years. The character is slowly fleshed out more under Claremont and Byrne. In X-Men 109, his former Department H comrade James Hudson, called Weapon Alpha and later known by other codenames, is sent to try to recapture him for their employers. After the X-Men are separated from Phoenix in Antarctica and believe her to be dead, the team stops in Japan on their long journey home, where Wolverine meets the beautiful Mariko Yoshida, cousin to the short-lived X-Men team member Sunfire. Their journey then takes them to Calgary, where Weapon Alpha, now backed up by a new team of Canadian heroes called Alpha Flight, attempts another kidnapping in X-Men 121. Both times, Wolverine manages to avoid being taken into custody. When the X-Men arrive home in New York, Wolverine is delighted to discover Mariko Yoshida visiting the Japanese embassy, and the two get to know each other a bit more. The X-Men reunite with Phoenix to battle the evil mutant Proteus on Muir Island. Their next major adventure involves the debut of the Hellfire Club, and it's here that Wolverine gets the big splashy solo moment that will alter the trajectory of the character. As the only member of the team not captured by the club, he infiltrates the building and single-handedly takes out a number of Hellfire Club guards, breaking in to rescue his fellow X-Men. But it's too late to stop Jean Grey's transformation into Dark Phoenix, leading to the famous Dark Phoenix saga. Battling the woman he loves is difficult for Wolverine, and while he has a chance to kill the monster she has become, he finds himself unable to do it. Jean ultimately commits suicide rather than give in to her insatiable cosmic hunger, and Wolverine is left devastated. As the X-Men take some time to grieve, and to welcome their new junior member Kitty Pride, Wolverine and his best friend on the team, Kurt Wagner aka Nightcrawler, travel to Canada to settle things with Department H. It's here, in 1980's X-Men 139, six years after the character's debut, that the reader first learns Wolverine is called Logan. This is the name by which he's known to his old friends, the Hudsons. After Logan and Kurt help Alpha Flight defeat the Wendigo, the Hudsons promise to get the Canadian government off Logan's back. With Phoenix dead and Cyclops taking a leave of absence to decide what to do with his life, in the 80s the book shifts focus to become much more about Storm, the team's new leader, and Wolverine, Kitty Pride's primary mentors, as Logan finds himself with a soft spot for the girl and begins training her in self-defense and the martial arts. Other adventures in this period include another journey to space, where he's impregnated by the parasitic aliens called the Brood, but his healing factor is able to destroy the infection, and he proves essential in saving the rest of the team from being assimilated into the Brood hive mind. After returning to Earth, Logan spins off into his first solo title, a four-issue 1982 miniseries called Wolverine by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Disturbed by the apparent disappearance of Mariko Yoshida, Logan travels to Japan to investigate and learns that her father, the Yakuza crime boss Lord Shingen, has arranged for her to be married to one of his associates. Shingen offers Logan a chance to win her hand himself in a duel, but uses poison and other trickery to defeat Wolverine in front of a disappointed Mariko. Thrown out into the streets, he's aided by Shingen's top assassin, the female ninja Yukio, who grows fond of Logan and ultimately betrays her master. Logan kills Shingen in single combat, even though he believes this will cost him Mariko's affection. But she's actually grateful that he has restored honor to the Yoshida family, and bestows upon him the clan's priceless Masamune sword. Logan and Mariko are then engaged to be married. This leads directly into the From the Ashes storyline in Uncanny X-Men, as the team travels to Japan for the wedding. 
Logan's disturbed to see that the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants member Rogue has joined the X-Men as he bears a grudge against her for stealing the powers and memories of his old friend Carol Danvers, the Avenger Ms. Marvel. The two become friends, however, after they're the only ones able to battle the supervillain Viper and her paramour, the Silver Samurai, Mariko's evil half-brother. Wedding preparations continue, but during the ceremony, Mariko suddenly rejects Logan and calls off their engagement, declaring him unworthy. Mariko allies herself with the Silver Samurai and binds Clan Yoshida to the Yakuza. It's ultimately revealed that the evil mutant mastermind has manipulated her with his illusion-casting powers, and though she's freed from his influence, she now feels she is unworthy. She still refuses to marry Logan, saying she must restore her own honor before she can be a partner to him. Not long afterward, Logan rescues an orphaned girl named Amiko, whom he entrusts to Mariko's care. In the 1985 miniseries Kitty Pride and Wolverine, Logan returns to Japan when Kitty Pride's father gets into hot water with the Yakuza. Kitty's kidnapped and brainwashed by Ogun, an evil telepathic ninja and an old sensei of Logan's, who basically uploads all his ninja knowledge into Kitty's brain. Don't worry about it. With some help from Yukio, Logan frees Kitty from Ogun's influence and they defeat him together. Returning to the West, Logan learns that Storm has lost her powers and that his best friend James Hudson has been killed. He travels up north to grieve with Alpha Flight, and then comes into conflict with a new enemy, Lady Deathstrike, a cyborg whose late father designed the adamantium bonding process the Canadian government stole to create Weapon X. She sees Logan as a walking theft of her father's work, and tries to kill him, first by herself and then with the help of the Reavers, cyborgs who were formerly the Hellfire Club guards Wolverine mutilated and left for dead during the Dark Phoenix saga. When Rachel Summers, secretly Scott and Jean's daughter from an alternate future, don't worry about it, accidentally creates a psychic rapport with Logan in an attempt to boost his healing factor, Logan discovers that she intends to murder the Hellfire Club's black queen, Selene. Though he has no problem with killing in battle, Logan does not believe in cold-blooded execution, and finds himself stabbing Rachel in order to stop her from carrying out her plan. He loses track of her as the team is thrust into the mutant massacre in which the Morlocks, a community of mutants who live beneath Manhattan, are slaughtered by a group of mass-murdering evil mutants called the Marauders. Among the Marauders is the despicable Sabretooth, a mutant with powers similar to Wolverine's and with whom it's immediately made clear Logan shares a long and bloody history. Logan also smells Jean Grey's scent in the Morlock tunnels, unaware she's been resurrected in the new title X-Factor, and believes he may be losing his mind. Wolverine is made field leader of the X-Men for a time when Storm departs for Dallas to see if the mutant inventor Forge can find some way to restore her powers. This leads directly into the event Fall of the Mutants, in which the X-Men sacrifice their lives to defeat the cosmic being called the Adversary. They're restored to life by the Omniversal Guardian Roma, and Logan suggests to Storm that they implement an idea she'd previously floated called Plan Omega, allowing the world to believe they're dead so the X-Men can operate in secret. They establish a new base of operations in Australia. This is also when Wolverine's ongoing solo series launched. In that title, he takes on the identity of Patch, who's basically just Wolverine in an eye patch, to operate in the thriving criminal underworld of Madripoor, an island nation in Southeast Asia. This stuff is all really fun, but you absolutely do not need to worry about it. In the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, Logan's reunited with Jean Grey, from whom he steals a passionate kiss. The X-Men and X-Factor teams become allies once again, but the X-Men return to their base of operations in Australia. Soon afterward, however, the team disintegrates while Logan is off in Madripoor, with several members disappearing or apparently killed. Logan is captured by the Reavers, who torture him for days, and is only rescued by the young teenage mutant runaway Jubilee, who had secretly followed the X-Men through a portal back to their base some weeks earlier. 
That same year, a flashback story in the Wolverine solo title reveals the source of the bitter hatred between Sabretooth and Wolverine. Decades earlier, on Logan's birthday, Sabretooth raped and murdered Logan's lover, a Blackfoot woman named Silver Fox. They have found one another and fought brutally on Logan's birthday ever since. Stories in this period underline that Logan is much older than he appears, and that he looked about the same age as he does now back in World War II. In the present, Logan and Jubilee travel to Hong Kong, where they rescue his teammate Psylocke from her brainwashing by the Japanese crime syndicate The Hand. They eventually reunite with Storm and reform the X-Men in the 1990 franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda. Shortly afterward, Chris Claremont ended his lengthy tenure on the X-Books. Then there's this whole thing with a little girl android called LCD, who's sent to kill Logan by the Reavers, but is ultimately reprogrammed and saved from her suicide mission. This is in his solo book, which by this point was written by Larry Hama, and it's a big old why. The big thing you do need to know is that Sabretooth pulls a Darth Vader I am your father routine on Wolverine, and while that was originally Claremont's intention, in this story it's revealed to be false thanks to a paternity test conducted by S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury. Meanwhile, in the anthology title Marvel Comics Presents, Barry Windsor Smith writes a serial called Weapon X that offers, for the first time, a glimpse at what exactly happened to Wolverine in the custody of the Canadian government. As an experiment called Weapon X, he was brainwashed and programmed for murder, his skeleton bonded with adamantium, and his memories erased and altered. Up to this point, Logan believed himself to have been an abandoned child, apparently from a First Nations tribe, who was cast out and raised by a pack of wolverines. No, seriously. Dwy. In any case, when he uncovers the truth of the Weapon X experiment, he realizes he cannot trust his own memories. Listen, the 90s are just not my thing. There's lots of Weapon X stuff in this period, most shockingly the apparent resurrection of Silver Fox, who is seeking revenge on Logan for unknown reasons and is now working for the terrorist organization Hydra. Logan starts to remember his work on the mysterious Team X and joins forces with his old comrade from that group, Maverick, to battle the vampiric Russian mutant super soldier Omega Red. Silver Fox secretly conspires with Matsuo Surayaba, the leader of the Hand, to poison Mariko Yoshida. Mariko begs Logan to mercy kill her before the agonizing death the poison will cause, and he tearfully grants her wish. Another conflict with Silver Fox and Sabretooth leads to the apparent death of Silver Fox, again, and Logan buries her at the cabin in Canada where they had lived before Sabretooth killed her, the first time, maybe. With all their memories altered by the Weapon X project, the truth of any of their recollections seems open to question. In the 1993 franchise-wide event Fatal Attractions, Magneto rips all the adamantium out of Wolverine's body. It's absolutely brutal, and he's real fucked up afterward. The surprise reveal is that he still has his claws. He'd thought Weapon X added them as part of the experiment, but it turns out they're natural retractable bones that extend from his hands as part of his mutation. They'd simply been bonded with the adamantium like the rest of his skeleton. Weakened significantly and losing himself to his innate berserker rage, Wolverine grows more and more frustrated. He eventually is left alone at the mansion with the X-Men's prisoner, Sabretooth, whom Xavier is treating with telepathic therapy to try to cure the evil mutant's bloodlust. Sabretooth breaks free, and they fight nearly to the death, with Wolverine eventually lobotomizing his rival with a claw strike to the brain. Then, listen, I'm just gonna call Dwy here. The 90s are dumb. Wolverine regresses into a beast man for a while, he fights Lady Deathstrike and Sabretooth some more, he picks up another troubled teen girl sidekick, Marrow, who's way more troubled than the teen girl sidekicks he's had previously, he has a marriage of convenience with Viper for a minute to become ruler of Madripoor, uh, Apocalypse turns him into a horseman of death and puts the adamantium back inside him, the demonic ghost of Ogun pops back up for a bit, all of this is pretty dwy. Don't worry about it. In Grant Morrison's new X-Men, launched in 2001, Wolverine is mostly a supporting character. 
The book was complemented, however, by Origin, a limited series event written by Bill Hemas, Joe Casada, and Paul Jenkins, with art by Andy Kubert. Origin finally tells the story of Wolverine's, well, origin. It's revealed that he was born James Howlett, the cloistered and sickly son of a wealthy Canadian plantation owner in the late 19th century. His mother was having an affair with the groundskeeper, a man named Thomas Logan, and young James is actually the illegitimate product of this affair. His only companions are a girl named Rose, a redhead who looks a lot like Jean Grey, and the groundskeeper's abused son, called only Dog, who is secretly James's half-brother. Dog is a sociopath who becomes violent as he gets older, eventually attempting to rape Rose and then murdering James's puppy after James tells his father what Dog has done. When Dog and his father are expelled from the grounds, they come back to the plantation to rob it and to convince James's mother to leave with them. James's father interrupts and is killed with a shotgun blast by Thomas Logan. James, enraged, manifests his mutant power for the first time, using the claws that erupt from his knuckles to kill Thomas Logan and maim Dog. James's mother then kills herself with the shotgun. Rose and James run away from home, and the rest of this is pretty dwy. James starts calling himself Logan as an alias and becomes a miner at a quarry. Eventually, Dog hunts them down, and in a battle between Logan and Dog, Logan accidentally kills Rose with his claws when she tries to stop them. He's so traumatized by this that he runs off into the snow and dissociates for a number of years in the wilderness. Back in the present, Sabretooth kills Logan, and he meets Rose in the afterlife, and she tells him stuff about his past from the Origin miniseries. He gets better, obviously. Over the course of New X-Men, Wolverine learns more and more about Weapon X, actually Weapon 10, part of a series of projects called Weapon Plus. He meets Weapon 13, the mercenary Phantom X, who addresses him as James, his birth name, for the first time in a hundred years. Eventually, he destroys Weapon 15, the ultimate product of Weapon Plus, but this triumph is undercut at the end of Morrison's run by the death of Jean Grey, who is murdered by Magneto. Wolverine decapitates Magneto in revenge. This Magneto quickly turns out, in a bit of editorial fiat, to have not been the actual Magneto at all. Around here, we meet X-23, a.k.a. Laura Kinney, a young woman partially cloned from Wolverine's DNA. And listen, I'll get to her in her own episode, but I just cannot tackle all of that right now. We will be here all day. By the same token, I am simply not going to talk about Romulus. I refuse. Google him if you want. Romulus Wolverine. Romulus Marvel. I don't know. You have options. God, this is running long. Okay, um... Wolverine isn't thrilled when Cyclops and Emma Frost start dating, like, minutes after Jean's death. He still hangs around and does the X-Men thing and investigates Weapon Plus some more. On another journey to Japan to help out Marco Yoshida's cousin, he's killed by Gorgon, an agent of the Hand, and resurrected and brainwashed by the Hand to serve as their assassin. He kills a whole lot of people while under this brainwashing. At the end of this story, he defeats Gorgon by using his claws to reflect the villain's own petrifying gaze back at him. Then Wolverine joins the Avengers, and I don't care. After the 2005 company-wide event House of M precipitates the decimation, in which nearly all mutants on Earth are depowered, Wolverine realigns himself more closely with mutant kind. He drops off the grid eventually, however, to further investigate his own past. Having recovered memories of his long-lost pregnant wife, Itsu, he returns to Japan to figure out what happened to her. It turns out she was murdered by Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier, who was brainwashed at the time, and Logan discovers that their child, Akihiro, was ripped from her womb and raised as a vicious killer. In the present, Akihiro, now an adult assassin called Daken, meaning mongrel, a reference to his half-white heritage, becomes one of Wolverine's fiercest enemies. More Avengers stuff, don't worry about it. Eventually Wolverine kills Sabretooth? Honestly, guys, if you're super into Wolverine, just pick up his solo books. It's all there. Tons of Wolverine content just for you. 
After the 2007 franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, Wolverine's chosen by Cyclops, now the leader of the tiny endangered population of mutants remaining, to head up X-Force, a Black Ops wetwork squad kept secret from the X-Men and all their friends. The X-Men are based in San Francisco by this point, and so, of course, Logan has a history there with the Black Dragon Tong, a Chinese-American organized crime ring. I truly don't remember this story, and I refuse to reread it, but I think he ends up being named as the protector of Chinatown? Don't worry about it. More Romulus stuff? Nope. Then there's Avengers stuff again, which is also a nope. We're going to save this stuff for a Dakin episode, okay? Eventually, Wolverine starts dating an investigative reporter named Melita Garner. In the 2010 franchise wide event Second Coming, his best friend Nightcrawler is killed, and the X-Men learn about the existence of X-Force, which horrifies most of them. Then San Francisco gets invaded by vampires. Um, Jubilee becomes a vampire for a minute. Anyway, hold on, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. Trust me. Just trust me. Writer Jason Aaron sends Wolverine to Hell in 2011's Wolverine Goes to Hell, in which he battles a group called the Red Right Hand, made up of people who had lost loved ones to Wolverine over the years. The Red Right Hand uses magic to send Wolverine to Hell. After he claws his way back, he butchers their enforcers, a group of mutant warriors called the Mongrels, and then is real fucked up when he discovers the Red Right Hand have killed themselves and left behind a note, informing him the Mongrels were his own forgotten illegitimate children, assembled into a fighting force by Dokken. Sometime later, the young mutant Quentin Quire causes an international incident, and Wolverine and Cyclops disagree on how to deal with it. Logan's been generally chafing against the way Scott is raising young mutants as soldiers. In the 2011 event Schism, Cyclops encourages another young mutant, Oya, to use her powers to kill Hellfire soldiers. This is a hard line for Logan, who breaks off from the mutant haven Utopia with a significant proportion of the remaining mutants, returning to New York to found the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. Then there's more Avengers stuff, eventually leading into the 2014 event, Death of Wolverine, in which a virus from the microverse disables Logan's healing factor. Discovering that Dr. Abraham Cornelius, the architect of his torture in the Weapon X project, is alive and up to his old tricks once again, Wolverine puts a stop to his plans, but is suffocated by liquid adamantium as it hardens around him. Wolverine, shockingly, remained dead for a good while. Because you can't keep a good intellectual property down, he was replaced across the various X-Men titles by two replacement characters. His daughter Laura, formerly X-23, who takes the codename Wolverine for herself, and Old Man Logan, an older version of himself from a really depressing alternate timeline. He's ultimately resurrected by a new villain named Persephone in the 2018 event Hunt for Wolverine. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, oh my god we made it. Wolverine moves to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Though he's somewhat ambivalent about the Krakoan project, he's content to be with the people he loves, particularly Jean Grey and Scott Summers, with whom he now seems to have an interesting arrangement. He serves as part of the new iteration of X-Force, which acts as Krakoa's equivalent of the CIA, and most recently was one of the sword bearers of Krakoa in the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords. Also, Dracula's after him? It's a long story. You don't need to worry about it. But it's a good time to jump in, if you want to. X-Men, X-Men! And we're back! I forgot about a lot of that. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot it's to keep a, it's track of. It's a lot to keep track of. Yeah. I uh, I have forgotten more of it than I think I've ever actually read. <laughs> I was researching. I actually was stunned. One reason I think I've always had trouble with Wolverine is that so many of his storylines revolve around one of his girlfriends getting murdered. And that's just not... Yeah. It's just never my favorite plot device. So... I think that what was most staggering to me when I was compiling that was just the list you stack up to the point where there is that 
clever storyline where there's this new evil team out to get him that Dawkins leading and they're all his yeah children born out of wedlock with tragic women essentially that's pretty great yeah i mean that's funny but he does have kind of a james bondy quality where they only last for one arc and then something terrible happens to you that's right marco being the most famous one yep. but the weapon x stuff i never quite got into because wait do you mean the barry windsor smith weapon x stuff the silver fox thing ah yeah yeah back in the day when it gives the backstory between him and Sabretooth, and it's like Sabretooth raped and murdered Silver Fox, and that's why they hate each other. And it was just sort of like, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Now, of course, that's always been Sabretooth's vibe, which is why I'm personally glad he's in the negative zone pit that they put together. The hole, get in the hole, get in the hole, because he is a, a pretty irredeemable character, and it's funny they're. People on that island who you think, I mean, we're now all like, oh, Apocalypse, what a fun dad. <laughs> the joy of the X-Men is that a character like Mr. Sinister, who is an evil eugenicist monster, can now be an extremely funny, almost likable character. Being an X-Men fan means also loving the villains in a way that I think... Yeah. If you write your villains, it's uh, nourishment for your story, for sure. Yeah, but Sabretooth is one where I've always found it hard to just get past the sort of raw violence of the character to be like, yeah, yeah this guy should hang around. Um, <laughs> you know, Celine eats people, and yet it never quite... <laughs> you don't have a problem with that, but I think it's the sexual violence stuff with him specifically that's always kind of wigs me out. Sure, yeah, yeah. Which it's supposed to. I mean, it's not supposed to be a feel-good romp. Yeah. But my introduction to him, of course, is him chasing Psylocke in her nightgown That's right. through the mansion in Mutant Massacre. So, Yep. Pretty awful. Pretty awful. And he showed up, right? His first appearance was in an Iron Fist comic. Yeah, Sabretooth shows up in Iron Fist. Yeah. And I think was based on Burns' design for Wolverine Unmasked, but then he found out that Cockrum had already drawn Wolverine Unmasked, so he had to reuse the design somewhere or something like that. Interesting. Got it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and so then he and Claremont were like, oh, he'll be Wolverine's father. And then that obviously is not what ultimately happened. Yeah, Wolverine's great foil. My favorite Wolverine stories are X-Men 205. Fact check me there. Make sure it's uh, the <laughs> one with, uh, with uh, Katie Power. That is correct, yes. It's a holiday holiday issue in the snow. You might not love it, but you would be wrong. It's Barry Windsor Smith, and it <laughs> happens in the snow, and it's incredible. Speaking of Barry Windsor Smith, you cannot talk about this character without talking about the Weapon X series that uh, was serialized in Marvel Comics Presents. Mm -hmm. Also, just filling in some gaps or sort of being explicit about the things that we knew that had happened, and all the while... You are feeling for this um, this monster, sort of that they are making. Yeah. So uh, those two stories, the Miller Rubinstein Claremont mini, is tremendous. And then, honestly, the there are some newer era stories that I love so much. The X Force run that um, Rick did with Jerome and Esad, uh, with Wolverine and Deadpool. I don't think ever gets uh, quite enough love. Um, and probably my favorite of the new era Wolverine 
uh, stories, uh, Enemy of the State, I think that was J.R. J.R. and uh, Mark Miller, where he was subverted and ran into, you know, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. He took down 10,000 S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And I think that was also, was that the introduction to Gorgon? I believe so, yeah, which I hadn't read. And then I went back and read it because I was jumping into Dawn of X. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? Because I, <laughs> I had to... Yeah. I had to catch up because people were like, oh, he's from Wolverine solo stuff. And then from Hickman's run on other stuff you don't read. And so I was like, okay, okay, I'll get it. And someone gave me a reading list to catch up. And have you read this week's Ten of Swords books? I have read okay. everything, yeah. So obviously he had a pretty dramatic last stand in the pages of Cable. Spoilers for this week's Ten of Swords books, yeah. It'll be last week's by the time you hear this. Last week's. Right. But no, that was quite... I was glad I was caught up on who the character was before I... Right read that although it's fascinating to me how you know for a hydra agent who's done pretty terrible things what a heroic ending and i guess that is sort of the dawn of x thing i mean it is a second chance for everyone right and it's about what they do with it amnesty for all you know even victor could have had it but victor blew it he chose not to obey he chose to thumb his nose at all of this and say what are you going to do about it and then he found out fuck around and find out victor it's not gonna go well if we don't put him in the hole it's not gonna go well yeah we're only gonna be back here i don't want to do this meeting again right and like we're sitting here with literally mr sinister and exodus and apocalypse and yet what's the difference between lawful evil and chaotic evil right that's exactly right like you can have a meeting with mr sinister or (laughs) celine yeah and convince them that you're doing something smart but it's really hard to have Sabretooth or like Strife or one of those characters just hang around. Yeah. Actually, Strife is an interesting one because he's, there's so much stuff between Apocalypse and Cable and Strife that... I am hoping he'll turn up again at some point, but now that we know there's a whole anti-clone sentiment happening, I don't know. Well, Strife, Strife won't care. He's also from the future. There's all kinds of reasons why he might Uh, well... Yeah, I should shut up. <laughs> of course, maybe he's not the clown. We never really will know for sure. That's right. Yeah. So th- those were my favorite Wolverine stories. I'm leaving out a lot of them. Uh, I think he's always had uh, wonderful moments in a lot of these team books. The Spider-Man and Wolverine by Priest, who I don't think was Priest yet. I think he was still James Owlsley. So if you're looking in Marvel Unlimited, I think it would be under Owlsley. But check that out. That is great um, and leaves such a bruise on Peter Parker that it's wonderful. And then also, how can you not love the start of New Avengers? You know, like the raft and having Wolverine on that team and the getting the band together. It certainly was a bit of a mind blower, like Wolverine's on the Avengers. It, But it's also like what comic books needed at that moment you know oh it revitalized the whole marvel brand yeah yeah it was marvel i i forget where marvel was in bankruptcy at that point but like still not in the greatest place if i recall correctly yeah you had marvel knights i've never been an avengers person but that was the moment where i was like all right i'll check it out i guess yeah but in part that's because wolverine's pop culture penetration was so vast he is a character that it's so easy to do things with totally because like i said he fits into a lot of different genres 
Mike Sims wrote in to say, Hi, Connor and Jerry, what's your take on Logan's healing factor, specifically how it has seemingly made him unkillable over time? It used to be that poisons could bring him to the brink of death, but now he can survive nuclear blasts if even one cell remains alive. And I guess what I think about that is it's given the character the opportunity to, you can do anything with him, even before Krakoa. Now everyone can do this. Like now everyone has the opportunity to do sort of kamikaze crazy stuff. But before that, part of what contributed, I think, to Wolverine's enduring appeal was in that 90s Iron Age moment where the splatter punk violence was a big part of comic books. He was the character. I mean, this is why Deadpool took off as well, is that it's a character you can do comically outrageous, violent things to, and it's like Looney Tunes. He'll be fine in like two pages. Right. And I think that that was a very intentional power creep. I think that's right. You know, obviously I wasn't around for too much of that, but there was also when we needed to say goodbye to him, obviously they just pulled the power on on that and then it became... Hey, isn't it interesting to see how much punishment he can absorb before he's on the ground? Yeah. And I was surprised by how long they kept him dead. I mean, obviously they brought in old man Logan to replace him. Right. And Laura was doing her thing. So there was always a Wolverine character. But I was surprised that that lasted longer than, you know, the death of Captain America or the death of Batman or a couple other ones that were fixed a lot faster. I think we're always looking for new toys and new ways to tell stories. And we're only focused on making great comic books. But, you know, we also look and they're already to Jason's Thor in the MCU. You know, the the idea that the the stuff that he did with Esad and and Russell and all of his collaborators, that's going to be the next Thor movie. We're in a um, high-risk, high-reward job. You know, we Mm -hmm. um, sometimes doing the hard thing for these characters can yield unexpected results and absolutely so a question that i actually thought dovetailed nicely with some of what we talked about before justin park writes i'm wondering about your thoughts on wolverine's apparent thing for japan and how well have those japan-centric wolverine stories aged over the years why does he keep marrying or almost marrying japanese women i want to read more of the older x-men stories but i'm hesitant to read dated stories where asian women are fetishized or all the asian characters are ninja and yakuza and talk about honor all the time are there any particular issues or stories i should skip and tell myself not to worry about or is it still worth reading on a less serious note is wolverine a weeaboo and does he have a favorite anime I think that Wolverine's favorite manga or anime <laughs> is absolutely Lone Wolf and Cub, which we were talking about earlier. Has to be Lone Wolf. Has to be Lone Wolf. And if you haven't read Lone Wolf, you gotta give yourself uh, that treat. Yeah, that's a great. That's but a great. Sorry, book. you answer it first. You answer it first, and I'll sort of. <laughs> I'll I'll tell you what. This is something I've always had some trouble with Wolverine myself, as I sort of mentioned. I think the fact that a lot of his stories have involved him getting into these romantic relationships with women of color particularly asian women and then they die horribly or whatever and he's sort of this white man ensconced in the japanese underworld and he's like the true ronin or whatever but he's not japanese there is a lot of that and listen chris claremont loves japan he was big into that stuff there's a lot of what we might call orientalism in his classic work Mm-hmm. And at the time, in pop culture, that was not seen as odd or out of line or any of that. 
in terms of how well it's aged, I think that really is a your mileage may vary thing. I'm white. Yes. So I can't tell you how well it's all aged. I will say I find the Mariko character kind of to have aged poorly. Sure. Although she is now back and is a more active character than she was in those stories. But like Yukio, I always thought was great. I mean, there's good stuff in there. Well, you can always recalibrate it is the thing. And right. and honestly, even though some th- things we consider m- may not have aged well, mm-hmm. there's I don't think a world where I was trying to collect Lone Wolf and Cub or trying to f- get a VHS copy of Akira or even being interested remotely in that part of the world, except that this lit my imagination for it. And so at the time... Right, Wolverine made you want to look into Zatoichi or whatever, right? That was just it, is you have to understand that all of this stuff is is not... It's created within 100 days and sent to print and is of a moment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've run into... Some of the some of the cartoons that are streaming now, uh, like almost carry that message at the top verbatim of sort of a right, like the Whoopi Goldberg PSA before the old Looney Tunes cartoon. Exactly right, where you go, we are a part of the longest ongoing soap opera. Yeah, you know, is is it eighty eighty five years? We're coming up on a century of shared content, and. Look, I think f- for me personally, I I, I am the, the one of the elders now, which is 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 hilarious to me, <laughs> because I I sort of am waiting for a lot of people to hop in the urn with a lot of old ideas and a lot of bad yeah, bad right? stuff that I would love to say goodbye to that we're obviously not ready to. But enough said. <laughs> <laughs> enough said. Listen, one one thought though. I think we not that we forgive a story. You want to understand how it came to be. You know, actually to get to the heart of the question, I actually think there are a lot of those stories in Asia with Wolverine that that are great. Um remember the Jim Lee Cap Black Widow Wolverine story that took place? That one's great. I mean that that like that was another thing that is has left I could get Alzheimer's and forget my, half my family's names. I'll always remember that cover and the idea that like, oh, I want to go live in that comic book for a little while. Yeah, I think pretty much everything in Madripoor is great. Yeah. In all that classic stuff. Justin also asked about Wolverine's living arrangements with Gene and Scott and about Wolverine's sexuality and whether you should take things as explicit confirmation. And what I would say is, I personally, when it comes to queer sexuality in the X-Men, choose to see what I want to see. I love when something like Kate kissing her tattoo artist happens on the page. That was an enormously gratifying moment for me as a gay reader who has loved that character since I was a child. But do I need them to tell me that Wolverine is bisexual? No, I've chosen to just buy into that as my reading, and I don't know that it's likely that one of the most popular characters at Marvel is going to have that official rubber stamp put on his character sheet. I just don't know if they're going to do that. But one thing I like about this era is that much like the classic Claremont stuff, it feels like everyone is doing their best to allow for a diversity of interpretation on that score as much as is possible without getting corporate annoyed is sort of my sense. 
Yeah, I, 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 no, I think that's right. I think be wary of what you um, don't see explicitly drawn onto a, a page. But I think there are a lot of times throughout the history of comic books that we're relying on you imagining what you want between panels. I mm-hmm. think that's the one thing that comics can do better than film or television is it's requiring being present to read it and then have a thought about it. And obviously all arts in the eye of the beholder, but with this stuff, we're giving you moments yeah, panel to panel. And what happens either between those panels or between those issues is open to interpretation. And that was my favorite part about the oasis of culture that were the comic shops. Mm -hmm. You know, that was how I ended up, at Golden Apple in Los Angeles, it was, I didn't know, I knew three people in Los Angeles, but I knew that there were comic shops. And so uh, I I was going to get in the doors there and see who I met. And, you know, I ended up meeting everyone in the world that would become important to me from (laughs) friends to family to, to the, you know, my then friends introduced me to my wife and, you know, these are, we would stand around the back issues and argue about what the comic stories that we loved were. And did you right, think what they meant? What and they meant? You, and yeah. did you think this? And what about? And so, all this stuff, you know, if it becomes important to you, just embrace it and read what you love and, and certainly put out into the world what you love. I've just tried to, you know, I have this brain that. Like I, I I grew up reading all of these X Men comics and then thought about them for for twenty years and then got asked, Hey, do you have anything to say about war with these characters? <laughs> right, yeah. I was very, very lucky to be able to hear that story and to be leaving coming home from space, you know, leaving Marvel Cosmic and going, Hey, what if this, what if this, what if this? Yeah. And then have so much of that go, yes and and then, you know, the, the like Jonathan accommodating uh, so much of the 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 different output from Ben and Tini, myself and Vita and Leah and everyone. The yes and of Krakoa and this era is, I think, my favorite part. It feels more collaborative than any run on any major Marvel book that I can ever really remember. It's so many titles interweaving so delicately with so many writers. I mean, Claremont and Simonson did that, but it was just them. Yeah. Right, you know, right. it was the two of them in an office going, you know, Weezy, what are you doing next month? How can we make sure that it fits with what I'm doing? Yeah. To do it with 12, 15 writers is wild. It's the best writer's room I've been a part of, and it's the best functioning and most fun writer's room. And I think it's yielding the best results. I don't know that there has ever been a, a line of comics as, as, uh, as, integrated i've never i've never seen it I, I don't know that there's been a line of comics that i have looked forward to reading yeah as much as what the these comics are and so i'm always inspired whether it's a, a joke you know especially the the ten of swords obviously will be judged actually this week when you're listening to it <laughs> as we as i know the landing has been crushed because you know i i i saw it happen yeah you know it we did it they did it six months ago. Tini right. and John and Pepe uh, and Marte, uh, they 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 crushed it. And so, um, you know, but there's a lot of stuff in there that was, you know, you saw a lot of names in different places. That was 
Vita's first uh, stab at, at Marauders, and that was Ben and I working together. I gotta say, I I love your work on Marauders, but that issue Vita did is I know, but I did like a, it's my favorite Storm story in thirty years. I think they can't they can't put me out of a job. I, I got a kid to feed. <laughs> Why would, why would they do that to me? But I also really thought that the issues that you and Ben Percy did together were interesting. And from a reader perspective, it was like, well, is Ben writing the Wolverine stuff and you're writing the other stuff? Or was it more the two of you collaborating on every page? How did that work? My recollection was that when the shutdown happened, when Diamond closed, mm-hmm. we were sort of midway through through Ten of Swords. Like, I think we went to Chicago. Uh, That would have been in March. We had a big retreat. We talked about the event and what was coming out of it and what would get ratified as really future long-term business. And then sort of realizing, oh, we're not sure really what the world's going to be. We better make sure that um, this is just the best that it could be. And it should be a little bit bigger to, to do that. And when that, um happened ben and i realized um that once there was two marauders issues and what we wanted to do with those marauders issues for the following um for 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 the back half of the event that it was going to be too complicated to sort of write them and then wiggle it together that we would just have to break them together so Mm -hmm. ben and i started a google document and there were four columns and one column for each issue, and then sort of we would color code story beats so that we made sure that what we were... And now I can say this, because it's basically the rear view. You know, we the Marauders 14 and 15 was really going to be our best chance to meet the Iraqi. Right. But it was also a chance for us to have a lot of fun and spoil the rest of the event as much as we could. <laughs> and so if you, like, were to go back... You really see that, like we were all having a lot of fun, um, foreshadowing what was to come, and so uh, and and by the way, and like uh, the one thing I knew that Ben and I were immediately um, copacetic on that we that we knew that we wanted to sort of show what were the stakes of if the Krakoans were to be unsuccessful and so that was the yeah, i love that sequence top of the marauders 15 to just go we know that you're in other world but by the way you don't have a world if if this right. goes sideways and so i loved the callback to fever dream yeah 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 oh good because I'm that's glad. such an iconic cover of the I know, Academy, right? so putting him up on that and i'm just a huge opal luna saturnine fan so this yeah, event has been course. Very made for me to, to go to another manga. I feel very like Amagara fault. I'm like, this event is the hole that was made for me, and I'm going to climb into it. Yeah. <laughs> when this episode drops, Destruction is coming out tomorrow as you're listening to this. So I don't know anything because Teeny is very professional, but my understanding is it's going to be a real barnstormer, and I am excited for whatever explosive things are going to happen there. I know that the second to last and third to last weeks were a little divisive, but for me, as someone who loves classic Excalibur and loves all of that stuff, the appeal of throwing Wolverine and Storm and characters like that into an Excalibur story and making them just deal with the fact that they're in an Excalibur story now, I found extremely fun. I, uh, yeah, I, I, it's funny, I, I didn't, um, I, I could see that some people were like, why isn't there more stabbing? 
Right, and I'm like, do you really want 40 pages of sword fights? That would be pretty dull. Was I mean, my this... take on it. I don't yes. know. I think the sword fights we get are pretty fun. But oh my I don't want really to see too much more on them, personally. The magic of that, again, is, uh, you know, that in this magic world, I think some of the things that were to happen later and when the cards are pulled were because of the interactions that happened at the dinner. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just, you know, there's... I'm not worried about it. I think it's all going to age great. Oh, I think it's going to read really, really well in trade or hardcover or whatever else. John and Teeny baked this thing out, and even though we knew it was getting bigger, all we did was uh, adjust a few things and give you more room to go, hey, if we don't have the previous week of books, I don't think you really know who these characters are. You know, now you, I think, have a commanding knowledge of at least you could describe everyone and sort of go, yeah, the White Sword is fighting for Iraqo. The White, right. the White Sword does not, uh, he does not fuck with the Iraqi, you know. He doesn't truck with Emin, right, yeah. I think that it is a real testament to this event that fans are now so invested in the Iraqi sword bearers that they don't want any of them to die. <laughs> you know, like people now want every single one of these characters to make it back to the island to hang out at the tiki bar. I think that it has been a long time since an event has introduced a bunch of antagonists that have hit. Right. The closest analog I can think of is Thanos's Black Order, and I don't feel like those characters hit in the same way. It's not that they were bad characters, but there's something about the X-Men, like I said, where the villains are part of the family. Like, if you love X-Men characters, you love pretty much <laughs> all the X-Men yeah. characters. And so, just like I'm always happy to read about Sinister or Selene or Apocalypse or any number of other truly awful people, it's fun to have these characters come in and actually... They're not that awful. They have been through some real shit. Yeah, they've been in the shit and they yeah. they have... Um... You know, the fact that before a week ago or so, Bay the Blood Moon had never spoken on panel and now people are desperately... People were so relieved <laughs> that she wasn't killed in that issue of Cable last week. Right. <laughs> because suddenly we care. Like, it has, I think, been really well done. And I think that the first half of the event with the sword gathering... You know, it went on for a while, which is why I think people thought the sword fighting was going to be a really big part of the event, that and, and some of the marketing. But I loved the sword gathering. To me, that was the story because it provided for some of the most in-depth character studies we've had on some of these people in a very long time, like Vita's Storm issue, like sure. Betsy and Brian and Jamie's adventure in Saturnine Citadel. You know, all of that stuff has been, it's been so nice to just take some time with these characters. The X-Men are like that. They're your friends. They're your family. <laughs> you feel like you want to know exactly what's going on between the panels in a very specific way, I think, with these characters. I, I hope so. I'm glad you're digging it. I know a lot of people are. And obviously we are keenly aware of the state of the world and wanting to you know, be entertaining. Bring like, a if if, joy, we, right, if yeah. we are not going to be entertaining, like there's, there's no reason for you to open your wallet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have seen with my own eyes, the final pages and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a hell of a thing, you know, and I know some people it's tough on an event, you know, the nuts and bolts of it is we're asking retailers to, bring up orders to match 
the X-Men orders that everyone, you know, is counting on to read the event. Right. So there's some people who are sort of stuck in limbo waiting for reprints and this, that, and the other thing. And Mm -hmm. avoid spoilers. Do what you can. You're going to enjoy the hell out of it. I'm really excited. Jean-Pierre Linares writes, What in the opinion of guest Jerry Duggan is the significance of any of Logan being a major superhero of short or below average height who is generally regarded as cool and badass? What do you think about Logan's height? I always am a little nervous when I see him, like, uh, heighted up, we'll say. Yeah, I don't like when they make him tall. There's a lot of, you know, now that we're in the Disney ecosystem... You know, there, I think, are artists who are doing work that maybe didn't grow up reading X-Men. Back when he was 5'4", before Hugh Jackman played the character. Right. I mean, like, that was the thing is, you know, obviously Hugh Jackman's 6 plus, right? Like, there's... Right. And that's great. Like, on screen, that looks normal and wonderful and everything's great. Yeah, but I want Wolverine to always be standing on an Apple box like Julian Anderson because otherwise <laughs> he won't be seen in the frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a moment in one of those Marauders issues where he is talking to Brian about how Brian should have just taken one for the team and fucked Saturnine. <laughs> That's right. And he was, like, weirdly coming up. I-, I was like, is he standing on a chair? Because it felt yeah. like he and Brian were... <laughs> And a bit more, but for the most part, I think in the Dawn of X era, it's been done well. I particularly like all of the him and Scott and Gene stuff because a lot of the time, I think starting sort of in the '90s and particularly after Jackman played the character in the aunts, you would see a lot of Cyclops versus Wolverine stuff where they're about the same height. And so I always yeah. like when someone remembers that Scott's supposed to be like eight or nine inches taller. Than him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's not an exaggeration. We did a gag on the recap page of um, one of our uh, uh, Wolverine Infinity issues where Loki was in a circle. His head was in the circle and mm-hmm. he was full framed center shot. And then we just sort of put Logan's head. You could really only see the top of his head and the points of his hair in the other on the other side. We just lowered him down to be, you know, to do a camera trick. And it yeah. still makes me laugh. One more question, I think. Sure. Max Hopsalin writes, Wolverine is a character that astounds me in terms of his enduring place in popular culture. There's not a more popular X character than him, but I think most laymen probably just know him as the edgy one, the claws that Hugh Jackman played. What has always endeared him to me is his softness, his relationships with Kitty, Jubilee, and Kurt, among others. He could so easily be a character of a man's man who likes fights and beer and women, and he is that sometimes, but he can also be very tender and loyal and supportive. What, in your opinion, has helped him endure in the popular consciousness so long? And what aspects of his character appeal most to you as a reader? Cheers. Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think it also requires scope. We inherited this character in an issue of Hulk. And uh, Hulk uh, combatants need to be robust. And he was that. And maybe he was going to be a one-off and maybe he wasn't. But he, he stuck, you know, he beat the odds of the many tens of thousands of Marvel characters over the years managed to claw literally his way into uh, an, an ongoing situation in, in X-Men and really helping, you know, again, this is going to sound crazy because I know a lot of you have been born into a world where the X-Men um, are kings and queens, but from a good part of their early publishing history, they were just reprints. Total losers, yeah. You couldn't print new X-Men comics that 
that, that anyone would want. <laughs> That's why they gave it to a 25-year-old from Chris Claremont to go yeah, over, who well, was not tested. There is a lot to be said for anyone that wants to do this for a living of going in and trying to figure out how to blow the doors off of a place. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. y- yes, you give it to youth, let them run wild, see what they can do in a low risk environment. It's the same thing that Frank Miller probably could have chased higher uh, profile gigs and then said, I'm going to do, I want a corner of Marvel's Manhattan to do my own thing and be left alone. It's probably also what drove drove Walt to go to Asgard, mm-hmm. and thank God we had Wheezy writing X, um, you know, and creating little fiefdoms. But, but to answer your question, it goes back to how we see these characters, and obviously, I love them. I hope the love comes through. But for anyone that doesn't love it, I'm I'm a temporary. On the worst days, I'm a custodian. On the best days, I'm a curator and an art gallery. You know, I'm helping. I'm a midwife for these artists (laughs) to bring these things, these stories into the world. And through all of it, um, I think we have to show up harder than anyone. You know, if Marauders hadn't a hit, it with with a, you know suggestions from John and 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 indeed some writing from John and and suggestions from the editorial and and Russell and Matteo and Stefano you go why didn't that work well it didn't work because the ideas weren't right right you just have to be prepared to fail and I think a lot of people have done that over the years with Wolverine you know I don't think what Jason did um, you, you know when he made him a headmaster. I think a lot of Wolverine fans might have said, oh, that sounds like a bad idea. And yet that was where we got to show this tremendous character growth. He went from outsider to be to being the one who will go, if there's no one else to guard this school and to carry on this legacy, then I'll I will the do one. it. Then I will do it. When he'd always been so ambivalent before, yeah. And so you go, wow, what a gift. Now, again, the great thing, too, is obviously as the world shifts and you know there are business decisions come into it and all of a sudden he's dead and gone for a long time and then back and having to earn that again like i you know again don't tell ben but ben's one of my favorite wolverine writers (laughs) (laughs) these my favorite wolverine stories are the the ones that um he's cooking up now so i think it's a it's a fun time to be an X fan. It's a t- fun time to be a, a Logan fan. I would love to finally understand what the deal is with Omega Red's carbonadium synthesizer because I have <laughs> read those stories several times and yeah. did a lot of research for this episode, and I still don't actually understand why Wolverine hit it and all of that. So have Jordan back on. Yeah. Right. No. Exactly. Someone. Someone no, will finally uh, explain this. To I. Me. I. Uh, I do know the answer to that, but I'm not gonna spoil. It. <laughs> No, I do. I do. Well, good. I've become a very boring interview, I think, because the more I know, the more I can absolutely just devastate. You know, like I, I would look, oh, no, I didn't mean to tell you the end of the Right. No, it becomes that. hard. I know that Tom Holland has said that giving interviews about the MCU is really difficult because yeah. he knows that there are just so many things he could say that would spoil something people have spent like five years setting up and that he's really... He's just so nervous every time he gives a press tour because he's like, what if I say something that I haven't been cleared to say yet by the, you know, 300 people who have to sign off on these things? It happens all the time. Oh, yeah. 
you know, we, we had only one thing leak in Dawn of X, and I think it was Kate as the Red Queen because of a PDF. Uh, <laughs> like, I think the cover of Sword 1 also leaked a couple months before the announcement. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that might be true. And so people were debating for a long time who the character that ended up being Fabian Cortez was. Right. Because it was right, like, right. who's this guy? And it's something of a redesign. You're like, that's Frenzy. That's someone's, you know, yep. but that character was... People thought maybe it was Longshot or Adam X, the Extreme, or there were like lots of suggestions. I'm telling you too, that book is so good. I can't wait. I truly can't wait for that one. So good. I cannot wait for that one. There are a couple things that are coming up. I mean, I am, like I said, an Excalibur head. So when Megan popped up on the solicit in costume on the cover, I texted Teeny immediately. I was just like, you put Megan in the costume. Megan's in action. I'm screaming. What's so nice about this era is how much all of you clearly love these characters and love this material and how much all of you, especially as I get to talk to some of you on this show, it becomes clear, have spent your whole life, as you said, marinating in these characters because that love really comes through. It's that and the editorial freedom that you guys have been given to really reinvent the wheel has created something very special. Well, I hope so. I think the longer it goes, the more I, uh, the rope we have, no pun intended, to be able to say, okay, here's the next thing that we want to do. And actually the next, it's funny, Marvel has branded the next big thing. There are some really, really big things on the horizon that would not be possible without Krakoa. So, you know, I think the Krakoa era obviously would not work without the stuff that didn't work before it. Like we needed, you need the decimation for Krakoa to feel the way it does. And I was very publicly irate about the decimation because (laughs) the minority metaphor is the most important thing about the X-Men to me, which is why, I mean, as you said, and I'm not going to dig too deep into it, but as you said earlier, the two mutants that Jonathan didn't have free reign on, apart from Wanda and Pietro, who of course are their own complicated thing. Yeah. Were Storm and Franklin Richards. And of course, this week, a very controversial Franklin Richards story has come out. And I had issues with that story because the minority metaphor of the X-Men and the mutants is really important to me. And there was a time, almost 15 years, when I thought that kind of got pushed by the wayside. And Krakoa is so satisfying in part because it is a reclamation of that indelible thing that to me is why in particular the Claremont Simonson and the Morrison eras are so successful because they really lean into that and make it feel different from any other superhero book that has ever existed. This now feels like the natural evolution. I mean, I see those as sort of the three, and this isn't to insult the work of people like Mike Carey, who did great work in the period that I'm not crazy about. But in terms of the evolution of mutants as a metaphor, I mean, Claremont is who creates that. Before Claremont, it's not even genetic necessarily. It's just radiation. Yeah. And then Morrison built it into a real subculture that was living and thriving in a way that it hadn't been before. And now it's a nation. Yeah. And now it's a nation. It's a culture, right? I mean, the, right. that, that or it, it was baby steps to a culture, but mm-hmm. that was the great gift of those years, like the, the Grant and Frank years, where 
yeah, that that gave us Jumbo. Oh, this is the best clothing right. designer in the world. This, who's you know, uh, I, I, was that also where we had uh, uh, Rhapsody, the the violinist, and there's and all of the people in Mutant Town and yes, uh, and so we are at least I'm I'm uh, I think we're all aware of sort of where we would want these characters and this culture to go and i think a lot of the people that are suspicious of it or that think that they're acting in a cultish manner it, it's honestly it's it's always a rorschach test i think that says more about that person and that who's expressing that opinion yeah i think just because we're these are characters who are standing up for themselves does not mean that they would not also stand up for you right and i think that what will be interesting is I know you're doing a tie-in issue for King in Black with the Marauders. And I think it will be interesting to see how, you know, I prefer when the X-Men are kind of cordoned off because I don't think they cross over very well with the Avengers or with other superheroes necessarily because of the specific concerns that they deal with that don't always work with the other characters. But I'm interested to see how Krakoan heroes interacting with the wider world in events like that will work. And I agree with you. I don't, I mean, we got a question in from another listener that it's probably just a little too long to read, but he sort of is, it takes some exception to the isolationist separatist thing of Krakoa and how the dream, Xavier's dream was always about peacefully coexisting with human beings. And, you know, are they still fighting for that? And in my opinion, and this is where I come at it, as someone who's invested in that minority metaphor, at a certain point, asking for scraps from the majority is no longer appealing and is no longer what seems like it will best advance your culture. They have tried so many times. You have to, at a certain point, build your own thing. You have to say, all right, we're not necessarily going to meet you on your terms. We're going to make our own terms. And then there are people who are going to see that as aggressive and who are going to see it as morally suspect. And in certain places, it is. I mean, X-Force and everything X-Force is doing certainly is very morally suspect. And that's part of being a superpower. Yeah, that's the that's the hard thing about running a country is needing bastards to, to help you sort it. I, I, you know, again, it's about collective bargaining on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was reading about how churches still played a major role in the 2020 presidential election, and they, they, they—that's one voting block. You know, they, they were going to be other voting blocks. Um, you know, you can see them being uh, attacked after the election with recounts and what have you, in predominantly, you know, non-white neighborhoods in Philadelphia and Detroit, and. On, I don't know that 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 minority metaphor works one to one with mutants, but to me the simplest way to um, look at it was Scott. You know, Scott said it best in House of X one. You told me that I was less when I knew that I was more. Mm-hmm. He's not using his mutant gift to like knock down buildings. He's having a conversation. Right. You know, Krakoa. They tried it one way and it didn't work. 
Right. And so now it's, by the way, we're trying it another way, and I have another gift for you. I have medicines. And that's the thing is some people have objected to them holding the medicines sort of over humanity's head as, well, a, the, as a bargaining chip. But I'm sorry, humanity has never given them an inch. They have, if they have something that humanity needs. That's exactly and right. And they can say, we have this, we will give it to you without any complaint if you will give us our space to exist. But also don't forget the other the other thing about the medications were, were yes you can get them if you recognize our sovereignty and you can also get them by saying no and then dealing with a black market that we're going to control the price of right it appears very much demanding there has been no demand uh, on the mutant side to sort of say you must acknowledge this it's just a matter of relations, right? And a trade deal. Mm -hmm. And I think we went out of our way to sort of show that the black market drugs were going to countries and to people in need that needed those drugs, even though their governments were not going to play ball right. with Krakoa. That's sort of Emma's whole arm of this operation. Emma has a lot of soft power and is wielding it. And really that stuff, you know, really began... There's that amazing scene that, that Jonathan and R.B. did in the museum, right? Where mm -hmm. Eric and Magneto met her and it was... It One was more on. time for the children. One more time for the children. That's when I... I've said this before on the podcast. When I exhaled with, like, relief because <laughs> I was like, oh, this man understands how to write Emma Frost. Like, thank God. Because she can be a tricky character, but part of what I have liked so much about Marauders is the way it writes her as completely devoted to helping as many mutants as possible and willing to hurt yeah. humans who would stand in the way of that. I mean, what appeals to me about her as a character is that she, it is soft power, but she's not afraid to carry a big stick very specifically. And while she is this capitalist genius, when it comes to the mutants, she doesn't want anybody to have to pay for anything. Right. She's like the ultimate for us, by us character. <laughs> right, right, right. We're going to set up a black market operation and make these humans pay out the ass, and then no one on Krakoa needs to have a job. No one, yeah. And and, and, and these children will be protected and not right. blown up on a school bus. Like, it's a very specific... Thing she's doing I'm... and i love that it's her and kate because one of the things that's most satisfying about this era to me is the way 30 year old plot threads are finding so much purchase i mean the scene where she and emma in marauders talk about i loved that scene where she says you know sometimes i do think about what if i'd been a hallion what if i had gone with you yeah and emma's like oh I would have destroyed you. <laughs> I love that because much as Kitty has grown in those years and much as Kate is sort of a, a Kitty that has found herself, Emma, I mean, I love in early in Morrison's run when he has her admit that in all those 80s stories, she was just on a mountain of cocaine, like, you know, in yeah. the 80s. So she's, she that was kind of... That might be a harder trick for me to pull off today than it was for Grant back then. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But... Yeah. There's something to be said for these characters 
both being people who've come a long way since 1980 and just having them sit and talk to each other is so when it acknowledges all of that history is something that feels really really good well you know shaw and emma and and kitty all arrived at the party together and yeah they did a lot had a lot of help you know we we the the nice thing that we had um in comics and we don't ordinarily have it is you know jonathan's big idea bought us time yeah you know while while house of x and powers of 10 were being cooked there was a a whole other kitchen that was like getting ready for when that was sorted and you know there was back and forth you know flavors went across and jonathan and rb and pepe were planting the seeds literally that these books would become it was um something i guess i worry that you know it might be a long time before you could see that again because of the monthly grind of of comics i'm loving ten of swords and i think that the pandemic delay actually may have created a similar opportunity yeah in that you guys had a lot of time to find <laughs> that's true certain elements of this event i mean i remember when teeny was first mapping it all out and, I, and then i remember when it got bigger and I was asking her about work we do together. And I was like, when can you get me the, you know, and she's like, well, I have to beat out like this gigantic event now. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's twice <laughs> as big as it was. So um, give me a minute. And I was like, fair enough. Yeah. I just, um, I feel like, like a shell sometimes in this podcast because I really have very few complaints <laughs> about anything that's going on right now. And I, I've never had the experience of feeling like I need to buy every book and that I'm enjoying them all which is annoying because there are a lot of them and I work in publishing. So it's not exactly, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a ton of disposable income. But yeah, yeah, yeah. if you told me that I would be gagging every month for the book starring Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I, I know, would never right? have believed you. You know, it's like everything is just so good. That uh, it feels like a miracle that book that, that book is a miracle i was yeah. i was saying yesterday when that solicit came out with mastermind on the cover who's like yeah. one of the most loathsome people ever in an x-men book I mean, yeah like yeah, yeah. a rapist misogynist psychopath i but he, he popped in the cover i was like <laughs> oh my god mastermind what an iconic character like i can't wait to read that take on master like at this point you could throw anyone onto that book and i would be just thrilled to see exactly what like i i would love see i feel like honestly and this is saying a lot for me i feel like a zazzle could show up in hellions and i would be like this is great <laughs> and it takes a lot for me to accept the existence of that character much less be excited about it but that's how that that yeah zeb zeb can zeb can that drive book makes anything. me buy into anything at this point he is yeah. just a he's a genius yeah he's really is I can't wait to see also where you're going with Cable. I think that's a character who is such an interesting question mark in yeah. terms of the future of this era. I'm interested to see how his solo will dovetail with Sword. Yep. I would say I have never liked the Cuckoos as Emma's daughters. That was a retcon I didn't like. And you have made me like it, which I just, again, things I didn't think were possible, but the way that it has now shaken out into Emma as like, a helicopter mom being concerned that all five of her daughters are dating Scott's son <laughs> is extremely yeah. funny. 
is uh, it's a chance for some good some good gags, but I think yeah. hopefully something more too. So. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's building to something much much bigger. Yeah, there there's actually cable of all the things I'm doing right now is um, probably the most like uh, thing that I'm personally invested in. Uh, partly because it's Phil, and you know, I, I only have a career because of Phil. <laughs> um, and and partly because he and I um, both have young sons who are um, approaching the age that that right. uh, Nathan has in in our book, and so um, it's a uh, it's been uh, I think a pretty sweet experience to be able to and and I I've said this before, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but inexperienced heroes are a real gift because mm-hmm. they do uh, they are capable of mistakes and failure yeah. in a way that the that sometimes the the captain americas or the old man cables are are less capable of cables a character much like wolverine in that mold of like the grizzled soldier who's seen it all and and it's yeah fun to see him as a young man who doesn't necessarily know what he's doing I've always felt an attachment to Cable that I haven't necessarily always felt to Wolverine. And in part, I think it's because, as I mentioned earlier, and as I mentioned every week on this podcast, if you're a loyal listener, Madeline Pryor is my, that's my girl. Like, I am a Madeline Pryor enthusiast because of, I think, my attachment to Madeline, especially in the 80s material, the fact of this is Madeline's baby. This is the baby Sinister Stole. This is yep. the baby that got sent to the future. This like, I want him to be okay. I want him to be okay too. Yeah. And I just really, you know, even if he's calling Jean mom, which you just know is annoying Madeline wherever she is in hell right now. <laughs> I, I think that uh, it's a, it's just a beautiful thing to see him have that opportunity to like have a childhood in a way that he didn't. And again, you've made me care deeply about the teen version of Cable, who I was initially irritated by. Yeah. And uh, now, whenever something invariably terrible ultimately happens to him, I'm going to blame you personally and uh, be very (laughs) upset. Well, yeah, I do uh, do like to pull the wings off these characters. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what makes the story keep turning. These characters have existed for so many years because they're not allowed to get too comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I inherited um, a young cable, and I actually um, will uh, admit being wrong about um, young cable. Like, I, I believe I sort of made a point uh, in the room when we were discussing extermination. Um, you know, I said, I don't know if that's something that we really want to be doing. And for, even from a business perspective, you know, we know Josh Brolin. Right. Is going to be playing uh, Old Man Cable. And that character is popular. He's a popular character that can, you know, not all of these uh, characters historically have been able to hold solo titles. And I I had no idea that any of this was going to be relevant later at the time that I was making this bad argument. But, (laughs) um, you know, luckily I lost the argument because, um, you know, again, this has been a a real gift um, for, for Phil and I. Yeah, well, I mean, I I look forward to it every issue. And when I was looking at the Dawn of X titles as they were announced, it was the one I had the least personal interest in, just because I was just like, oh, the team cable, like, what do I... And then I was like, well, but, you know, they're good. Like, the creative team is good. So I picked it up and I was like, God, I love this, which I was just not 
expecting at all. Jonathan made it work right away. I mean, that you know, that Summer's family dinner and the way that, that he was talking to Scott and Jean. And... The way that Rachel and Nathan finally yeah. feel like Scott's kids, which they never have before, is yeah. really... I mean, and obviously the sliding timescale makes all of this difficult, but I think sure. my favorite thing about your cable book is that Scott and Emma feel like they're about 40 just because of the age of their kids. Yeah. You know, and in the story, those kids have all been artificially aged. So it's a little bit different, but they feel like the age they're supposed to be, if not for the sliding time scale. So even if they're only allowed to be 32 or whatever, they feel like they're maybe 45. And it's a nice feeling to have about those characters. Like they're allowed to be parents. They're allowed to have these concerns after so many years of adventures. If Emma could hear you, call her 40 she would erase She'd be furious, a lot of but very important files from your head yeah she would uh she would not siri go away <laughs> i said furious and my siri activated oh that's funny but i agree that's the one thing emma lies about i've said in other episodes emma <laughs> sure. is i think a fundamentally truthful character she says the truth sometimes in ways that are deceptive but she's yeah. sort of like a fairy queen she doesn't really outright lie except about her age yeah jonathan gave me that joke in that issue in the scene that you were uh quoting that you liked i i forget whether i had mentioned to him i wrote this scene of going hey i always mm-hmm. i've been curious about what would have happened and then sort of uh saying oh i would have destroyed you and then it's hey i needed to put that gun on the mantle of going if I can't use the gate, what else can't I use? Could I right. have trouble with resurrection? And and uh, John gave me that nose job joke. And oh, it's so good. That's the best line. I, I don't know that I found a better balloon in Marauders yet. So. <laughs> I also love, first of all, just to go back to the Jewish point, I love that it's the 18th attempt at Kitty's resurrection that works because that's, of course, high. Yeah. For the the boys listening, eighteen is a significant number in Judaism. I think uh, I think if she gets more tattoos, I would expect that she would see you would see that one. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, you know, uh, maybe a marauder skull. Um, Yeah, I think the the Jewish uh, you know the numerology is fascinating. It is the gematria of it all, and I um and I also love that it was Emma who figured out how to do it. The bond between those characters is really fascinating. I am a rare bird who wasn't crazy about the way they were written in Whedon's run. But obviously that planted some seeds that now are bearing fruit. But to me, the stuff in Marauders does feel like it's such a through line from the stuff in New Mutants and Uncanny in the 80s that I love. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm glad you're you're always welcome on the Marauder. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. We're I'm... back. We're back to regularly scheduled programming. Uh, I know. I've been waiting for that that cover, that Daughterman cover. Of... <laughs> That's the one cover we didn't lie to you on. <laughs> I know. It's like the, that cover of just Kitty and Emma. And I'm just like, I need it. I need it now, please. And as much as I'm loving Ten of Swords, I'm excited to get back on track with that storyline because I've really been enjoying. Yeah. It. It's going to be uh, year two is um, is really a hell of a thing. So I'm uh, I'm I'm super grateful to have uh, we'll keep the pirate stuff going uh, to have the wind at our backs and you know I'm, I'm <laughs> super uh, grateful to to you and to everyone else who has 
been naming what they love and, you know, bringing um, either uh, curious non-X-readers in or lapsed X-readers back um, has been also a real um, uh, special thing. You know, I, I, the, the guys that I used to ride to the comic shop with um, on bicycles, you know, are like texting me about stuff again. And it hasn't happened, you know, since like the 90s. So good times. It's crazy. And, and so many people have been writing into the account saying, I picked up these comics again because I'm loving this podcast or because you explained to me why this era is Love it. worth. And I'm like, that's, that's the best thing. Just as a fan, it's been so gratifying to hear that because I have always been an X-Men evangelist. There were many years, though, when I said to people, eh, I don't know, you know, buy it if you want. Yeah. But right now, whenever somebody tells me, like, oh, I just went and bought the Hellions trade because you talked about how much you, I was like, yes, great, go read it. You know, it feels good. I feel like, you know, like you said about how you provide that window for the artist, my role as an agent is usually more editorial. I was talking about this with Jordan before we recorded you know, I see myself as sort of the godparent to all the books that I help get out there in the world. And yeah. in this, this is a similar feeling where I'm just like, oh, you're reading the X-Men again and you haven't read it since the 90s. And like, you're saying I helped. Like, I feel like the shake and bake girl. Like, I helped. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yes. Everyone helps. Look, I mean, it's also the readers are the ones who are voting with, with their money. Absolutely. And it's, it is great to see how well these books are doing. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, no success was ever um, preordained for anything beyond House and Powers. And Nanny and the Orphan Maker outsold the Avengers one month. So that, <laughs> to me, was extremely gratifying. I was like, Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Nanny outsold. Avengers found shaking. Or <laughs> the seductive thing right is that a lot of it is so new yeah that you you can hopefully even though we are mining our own continuity if you're not understanding that it we're referencing an 80s it doesn't scene, matter it doesn't matter that's the more Sonian edge to this is like a new reader can jump in the way that new readers could jump into new i aspects. hope so and yeah. it was more fun to some extent if you picked up all of the little Easter eggs, but you didn't need them. Yeah. And I think that that's something that this era is doing really well. And uh, it's not easy to do. So I applaud you guys for that. And Wolverine is a great example, like you said, with Ben's doing on Wolverine. I keep calling him Ben as that we've met. We haven't met Mr. Percy. Uh, I should be more respectful. He'll come on here and he should you to modulate your, your recording frequencies. I know. Low ass bomb voice. That beautiful voice of his will be a pleasure to have on my show for <laughs> as many hours as he would like to growl into a microphone. Yeah. He really should voice Wolverine whatever cartoon project happens next. We were, um, you know, we figured out that Pog or Pog was rhyming fairly late. I think the art was all done. <laughs> and then uh, we were, you know, writing rhyming schemes and yeah. Ben... Ben was, it made sense that Ben should be the one to kind of go for that. I will say I was shocked at the reveal of Pogger Pog's true nature this week. Yes. Right? 
But it was a little heartening because it now I, I suppose it means that anyone can be Pogger Pog. You just have to climb inside the, the gator mech. Pogger Pog is aspirational. Yeah, Pogger Pog is the best self that you can be if you choose to be that self. We'll see what happens to the alligator pajamas. Hopefully they survive the Yeah, the I hope finish. they're intact by the end of the event because they are a fun, uh, fun... It's sort of like how after Liana died, everybody just sort of passed around the soul sword for like yeah. 20 years until <laughs> yeah, she yeah. came back. I feel like we should all just start passing around the alligator pajamas. Is uh, So this, uh, this episode will drop... The day before? The day before destruction, yeah. Did I spoil anything? I, I guess don't think not. you did, no. No, because all I told you was that Marauders may have spoiled stuff, but by... Yes. To sort of circle back to Wolverine for a moment before we start to wrap up, what I sort of do toward the end of the show typically is story recommendations for people who are newer to the character and want to jump in. With Wolverine, that's really difficult, Uh in some ways, but I think that what Ben is doing right now is yeah, I, I would start there. in that you don't need to know all the continuity. Right. And I think that sometimes, especially with the X-Men, it feels like you do, and I think Dawn of X has been good about not requiring that, but about it sort of adding. Yeah, I would do, I would start with Ben's uh, Wolverine and then uh, work backwards. I know we mentioned some of the other ones that I thought were, were great, but yeah. the fun thing is there's probably... 10 more amazing uh, collections of books that you could yeah. read on Wolverine and still probably not have dented exactly. uh, the, the, the surface. I so. personally, as always, recommend going to Giant Size X-Men number one ah, and yeah, just yeah. reading that Claremont run from 94 up through... Actually, you want to know something? It's so funny. I, I have to... Pull the handbrake. I know we're saying goodbye. We don't have to just yet. Um, well, I I got two lettering. Yeah, I know you have do. a lot of shit to do. But so but, to... but the reason I picked Wolverine was so that I could put my love of Havoc and Wolverine out into the universe. Meltdown. Meltdown. So that's Walton Wheezy writing, and then something that I haven't seen in comics before or since with uh, Muth and Williams each painting one of the characters. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kent Williams was painting Havoc, and Muth was painting Wolverine, and even though they were appearing on the same page, there were two artists it's on different that different artists, page. right. And it's lushly painted... I think it was maybe an epic comic that Marvel did. I honestly forget. But I still have it on my bookshelf. I have the graffiti designs signed. I'm a big Havoc fan, which is never a easy position to be in. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I really yeah, you that. really are a bit of a, a, a masochist. With I'm your... an '80s guy. Yeah, I, I love all those characters. He has one of the best outfits ever drawn. Ever it's a created. great outfit. Yeah, and he is like you said about characters who are not perfect characters who struggle. I've always found him compelling on that level. Yeah. I had some issues with that first volume of Uncanny Avengers. Yep. But other than that, I love what Zeb's doing with him now. Yeah. He's an easy guy to root for, too, is like the, like, oh, that's uh, Frank Stallone. Right. It's like he's he's the less, exactly. That's Billy Baldwin. It's like yeah, not, yes. you know, Joe Estevez. <laughs> <laughs> So, but, but but I think they recently added Meltdown to Marvel Unlimited. I might be wrong about that. 
Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, Meltdown is great. And if you're one of the many, many homosexual listeners of this podcast, Meltdown is an extremely homoerotic event. Yeah, there's if a lot are, of... Uh... If you're into that vibe. Um, if you're into Wolverine as a brothers-in-arms kind of amorphously sexual Spartan warrior or samurai-type character, his adventure with Havoc and Meltdown is definitely a lot yeah. of lines. Give that a whirl. Give that a whirl. I love the Claremont stuff. I would say in those 80s events, which are easy to find collected, Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, he's great in all of that stuff. Yeah. I would agree that the initial run of his solo is really worth reading. I think that the Larry Hama stuff is really worth reading. Yeah, Larry Hama does not get enough credit if, if, if for his contributions to many things and yeah. Wolverine is one of them. I think he's a lot like Louise Simons in that way where Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. I think Louise doesn't get as much credit because Chris Claremont was so much architecting that book in a way that no one had been allowed to really do before with one of these Wheezy's yeah Wheezy's but gifts. she's there beside him the whole time really. I mean there's no apocalypse without Wheezy there's no. no I mean like you can go on and on and on well an X Factor doesn't work until she takes over and then it becomes one of the best books yep and you know a uh, real personal anecdote before i bounce the you know walt and wheezy are two of the people that um encouraged me to pursue this oh really um yeah yeah as a young as a um th- we were not quite neighbors but they were over the border in new york state Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of the city and i was in new jersey outside of the city i'm in westchester actually like yeah. the X-Men, so, so. there <laughs> yeah that's exactly right you're not far from gray malkin lane and long story short i'd seen them at multiple shows then they were doing a, a show at spring valley in a high school gym and they were obviously the biggest draw and we we got driven up there in like seventh or eighth grade and Walter was uh, writing and drawing FF at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were asking him every question because there was no line. You right. know, we were used to seeing these people in New York. You get your signature, you say thank you, you say what you have to say, and then you move on. Right. This was, we trapped them in a gym. Right. <laughs> so me and four or five friends, and we uh, we were asking, hey, how? first of all, how do you sit, pronounce your name? Never heard, never had that pronounced you know pre-internet days simonson how do you say th- as opposed to like simonson simonson or? or any any uh, anything else any other permutation i said brevort aloud for the first time yes last Brevoort. week and i said it wrong i was like i know brevort and i'm like that's not correct shit yeah that one's not right loud, you know but that's that's life but he pronounced Mjolnir for us, and then he we asked well how do you do this we know you write and draw are you drawing and then writing are you writing a little bit and then drawing we can't draw we want to write yeah (laughs) and uh he thought about it for a minute and he's he i will always remember this and he said well let me show you and he reached under the table and he brought out um like an artist portfolio oh my god inside of there were the thumbnail pages for the that issue the current issue of ff that was on stands it was ff 337 with the time sled Mm -hmm. and he goes this is what i do 
and he and so seeing thumbnails actually was the most illuminating thing i'm seeing the panel breakdowns of of and and we had the issue there so so we could we went back and forth and he showed us where he changed things from page to finish from That's thumbnail wild. to finish page and you know was leaving room for the balloons and here was so and then he said yeah, i want you guys to each have one so we actually he gave oh us and I God. still have it a thumbnail page of FF three thirty seven after he explained how to make comics, but I have never obviously forgotten that and I've, you know he, he, Walt and Wheezy talking about how they were writing and drawing comic books stuck with us and uh, several of us actually have gone on to to make comics I. I um, have almost made a, a, a my career exclusively out of making comics, mm-hmm. but I have always tried to then sort of take any kind of time I could for anyone that was trying to break in because they obviously did not have to do that for uh, for us. Yeah, and they did, and it and it changed my life. Um, you know, it, I mean, I always remember the people who I think everyone does the people who are legendary who take a moment that they don't need to take. Sure. to do that stan was that guy too conversations i've had at cons with grant morrison or greg yeah. Rucka or you know people who i just respect enormously who, i mean i had an opportunity to talk to chris claremont once for you know a brief moment while he signed something for me that's and super cool it's cool i mean this is someone who shaped so much of how i approach art yeah in general because i imprinted on those characters and on these comics like a baby bird at a very young age (laughs) just to speak to someone who created so much of that it really is it's wild jerry uh jerry conway was another person that gave uh me a lot of time and and actually back then in my 80s uh like pursuit of this stuff you know i was talking to like david mazzichelli about Mm. like he was, this is how old I am. He was at a show. He was going to the Penta. And, you know, nobody wants to, like, nail the door shut behind them. These are all people who were very interested in um, talking about what they loved and encouraging right. uh, the what they maybe would hopefully perceive as the the next gen to to go do it so uh if anyone is out there listening and would like to make comics my my best and only advice is to go make comics even if you want to write marauders someday or wolverine someday or you want to write amazing spider-man someday the only way to get there is 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 write your own comics Uh, that Mm -hmm. means web web comics webtoons self-published zines whatever it is hand it out finish it do the next one and then eventually uh you will you will be asked to do it for money that is the dream right hope hope is there anything else you'd like to say about wolverine before we begin to wrap up he's the best at what he does and if you don't like wolverine go check out the issue where magneto ripped his adamantium out in fatal attractions in 1993 (laughs) That was about the time that I was like pulling out, like I sold Deadpool, uh, I sold New Mutants ninety eight, but like between years at Emerson, Mm -hmm. I I turned that into rent money, twenty (laughs) dollars of rent money up in Boston. 
But I do remember that. That was pretty rad. I think, isn't that, again, like so many things about this character are established much later than we think. Isn't it after the adamantium's ripped out that we find out his claws are natural and not... That that was the splash. That was, yeah. oh my god, he ripped his adamantium out and like, oh... His claws are going to be gone. It's of, like, oh and, no. And then he's like, bone. ah! Yeah. Six, bone, six bones shot out of his fist. Yeah, because we always used to assume that it was just something Weapon X shoved in there. Pretty good. Pretty great reveal. Oh yeah. Was that was that Jim Lee and and I forget who who drew it. I think it. it's Labdell. Or no, who drew it? I think it's um God, I forget. Just I'm not as good at the nineties, which is funny because it's what was coming out. See you on Yelp. See you on Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> or is there a Yelp for podcasts? I don't know. I, I think it's Apple Podcasts. I try not to look at that because don't do um, that. much as I, I tell don't. my writers not to look at reviews of their work. I I always laugh now because when I like do a vanity search and I'm like, why did this guy give this book one star? This is a great book, and then it turns out the book arrived damaged. And I'm right, like, no. of course, All yeah. Right. I mean, I I always tell people like, you, you can look at your reviews if you have reached the state of sort of zen with your work where you are able to take criticism that seems like it could be constructive and take it in and discard what you don't view to be constructive. And I know that for me, it's hard when I see my clients get a bad review or something like that. And that's part of why I've always been a behind the scenes guy and not someone who's tried to do it myself. Uh, And this podcast has sort of been exposure therapy because I get plenty now of irate emails about something I said on the podcast. And (laughs) I think it's a good way to get used to the idea that if I ever do write a book or a a comic or something like that, not everyone's going to like it. And guess what? That's fine because you can't please everybody. And that's not everyone is supposed to like it. And that's actually the, you know, yeah, it's not fast food. It's art. You know, it's not made to order. Yes you got to allow for the fact that sometimes it's not for whoever didn't like it. I, I would think of no real worse fate to sort of be uh, either enjoyed sort of like a like a sitcom, you know what I mean? Like a, like Watch in every household. Does anybody yeah. you know have anything really remarkable to say about it? No. But this is a treat for me to have been on because now I can um, make people angry not in a printed comic (laughs) well there you go and send uh, send all of your criticisms of my uh misdeeds on the podcast to my twitter handle at teeny howard (laughs) (laughs) and i will be sure to read them and respond um is there anything that you want to plug outside of marauders and cable right now Check out the King and Black issue. That's a super fun one and done Marauders issue. Um, I, you know, you hope that what you're doing is sticking, and then when you sort of there's an event and you are asked if you have something that you might be able to do in there, you feel like, oh, you know, hopefully this is a legacy title, and, mm-hmm. and that's a step in the right direction for that. Yeah, that means it's sticking to some extent yeah, if you're yeah. asked to contribute. And I, and I think we, you know, that's. Uh, that's that'll be me and Luke Ross. Stefano has uh, a bunch of issues coming up. Matteo has a really wonderful issue with uh, Storm and Callisto. Um, you're all getting a Christmas or Hanukkah or a holiday Festivus 
gift uh, when the women of Marauders confront the Black King. Uh, I'm pretty psyched. And, and, and 21 is really, 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 really going to be a big year um and for for the whole line mm-hmm. um we're we're, like we're all coming out with a lot of um new swing we have some new swings yeah so i can't wait uh, if you liked what you saw uh, you know prior to now i'm i'm please uh stick around um and 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 i hope you dig it uh, again life is too short for to try and make bad comics nobody's ever trying to do that um, but we love these characters, and we're just trying to give them um, the, the the trying to share our love, which sounds creepier than, than <laughs> I wanted to go out on. But that's I probably how I no, I completely out. get it. So yeah, yeah um, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media? Uh, well, the, you, I guess you already did. I'm yeah at Teeny Howard and at, <laughs> at Dig Duggan. Oh, did you hear that coyote? You'll have to oh. see if yeah. There's a, gosh, the wolves are here. Yeah, it's happening. Where's... Well, I just want to thank you for being my guest. This has been a lot. Oh my of gosh, fun. yeah, thank you. This was a blast. I would love to have you back at some point, maybe to talk about uh, Kate or Nathan further down the line, or anything you want to talk about. Frankly, I would love to do that. I always think, um, you know, I should not be a part of the big conversations around that stuff. I want mm-hmm. people to feel like they can not feel like they would hurt my feelings or right. what have you you know <laughs> uh, i'm i like like logan to i'm unkillable it's true uh, but but the, yes uh would love to uh, anyway. yeah we'll so, we'll figure it out let's do one once a year we'll check in and and you know i love that idea. it's not that much uh in publishing terms that's it's really true no two, i'm, I'm always trades, I'm, so. I'm looking at 2023 right now in terms of my schedule yeah, uh, that's book right. Book publishing is real. Yeah, his COVID probably time. seems like it's really fucked that up, though, right? It's uh, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> Sorry, it sucks. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email your comments, questions, or feedback to Cerebro at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. And you can find all of the episodes plus transcripts of the episodes and visual histories of the characters as I get them done. And I've said this three weeks in a row now, but I really do mean it. More of those transcripts are coming soon at Cerebrocast.com, which is the official landing page. Thank you so much for all your support. This has been such a joy to put together every week. And the thing that has been most joyful about it is the response from fans. It is very weird to refer to fans of my podcast, but I love hearing from you guys and I am always keen to chat. So please do continue to email. Please pick up Ten of Swords tomorrow. It is the end of the event. X-Men, Excalibur, and Ten of Swords Destruction. And uh, let's, you know, let's take this thing out on a high note. Is it too late to ask if I should, am I allowed to curse? Yes, you're very allowed to curse. Okay, all right. I'm glad you don't have, like, more podcasting to do and bleeping. No, I have a mouth like a sailor. We don't. I belong on the Marauder. Like, in fact, I was on Battle of the Atom and Xavier Files the other week, and <laughs> yeah. they had to bleep so much of my contributions to the episode. I didn't realize. I was like, I didn't know. I mean, I, and apparently, you can't say tits in prime time. 
You know, like wow. I didn't even. Yeah, they they bleeped out tits. No wonder I've never been to prime time. I know. So until next time, everybody. Thank you again, Jerry, for being Thanks, my guys. Guest. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a it was a blast. And tune in next week for the return of inaugural guest Teeny Howard and a debrief on Ten of Swords. Until then, see you next time. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.